Hi there, and welcome to The Game Pit. This is episode 46. This is one of our Council Chamber episodes. And we are going to call this one a big episode about small games. Hello, hello, and welcome. And it's not immediately obvious, but Sean, this is a very special episode. It is. If we didn't mess up our numbering <laughs> earlier on in our <laughs> in our podcasting career, it would be a special number for us, wouldn't it, Ronan? It's our 50th episode, so thank you very much for listening. Thank you to everyone who's ever given us feedback and support and even downloaded or played it or in any way supported our endeavour in making the game pit. We really do appreciate all the support that we get. For this 50th episode, we have got lots of contributors in and the theme running throughout it is small games. Often when we do reviews, we're looking at longer games because if we're going to spend some time going over them. There needs to be some meat on the bones of the game. And we overlook some of the shorter games that we play. So we thought we'd gather together a whole bunch of thoughts about them. You're going to be hearing from our friends who are dropping by. You're going to hear from Sean and I about several shorter games. And we hope you enjoy everything we have to say. And Sean is with us for most of the episode, but he does go missing here and there because he was a busy boy. I was, but Ronan ably stepped up to the task and I managed to talk to our contributors on his, on his little lonesome. And, of course, as always, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. You can go there for the very best in gaming podcasts. We are also proud members of 2d6.org. Go there for written, audio and visual content of the very highest calibre. So, another one of our friends has joined us on the Game Pit this time around. And this is Adam. Welcome to the Game Pit, Adam. Hello, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. As in with the rest of the episode, we are going to be discussing short games. Are you a fan generally of the shorter game or the longer game? Where do your tastes lie? I, I like a, a sort of middling, like a 90 minutes to two hours is kind of my sweet spot, generally. But then I, I really like to have some of those smaller, quicker games filling in. I like my fillers to be half an hour of decent game, not just slamming some cards down and, and quickly doing things, but a half-hour game that's actually thought out and, and plays well. You know, that surprises me, because I've seen your choice of two good games in that. Are we, are we starting already? <laughs> oh. This is two hours of that. <laughs> You're supposed to welcome them in, gently. Ease them in. This is inviting several people on the game pit to abuse them. That's Welcome the to the game pit. You're wrong. <laughs> right, well, defend yourself then. What's your first short game that you love to play? Uh, my first short game is a, a new one. This is uh, Red 7, which came out last year by Carl Chuddick and Chris Keys Lick, released by Asmadi Games. It's a, a straight-up card game. It's, it's supposedly themed around painting, but it's essentially an abstract. You have a deck of, of 49 cards, seven different colours in each suit. They're numbered one to seven. The notion is, on your turn, you're either playing a card in front of you to what's called your palette, or else you're playing one into the middle, and each of the seven suits has a rule. At the end of your turn, having played one or two cards, you have to be winning. So the rule in the middle will tell you what you need to do to win, and you must be winning, otherwise you have to drop out. And you just keep on going around and round until there's only one player standing at the end. Plays in generally about 15 to 20 minutes for a round. 
So what is it you actually like about the game, Adam? It's a very small game. It's only 49 cards, and it does pack a really good amount of game into that space. There's really two elements. So there's an immediate tactical puzzle. Every time the game comes around to you, you're looking at the cards available, you're looking at what everyone else has got, and you're thinking, okay, now can I make it? Can I do enough to be able to stay in and to be able to keep going? And then there's also a slight strategic element as well. It's not a, a deep thinky game particularly, but there is a hand management element. There's a, a sense in which you're needing to look ahead and think, well, if there are two or three ways that I could keep going now, which is more likely to be more useful later on? What do I need to save? What do I need to keep looking at, at the other people's cards? Also, it's one of those games that has a fairly basic setting and then it keeps getting more and more complex if you're willing to add the additional rules in. Up until tonight, I'd only played it with one of the additional rules, which is just the one that allows you to draw extra cards, and that adds more of the hand management element, which I think, if you've played it at least once before, once you know the rules, you need that level of complexity in it. That definitely makes it a game. Tonight, we also tried the additional extra rules. There are some icons on the odd-numbered cards which give you powers or penalties, and we found that that really balances the game out. That makes it much more interesting because the higher value cards are more difficult to play. In the base game, there is a certain amount... In fact, no, there's quite a lot of luck. If you get those high cards, it's a big advantage. With the advanced rules, the sevens are much harder to play and take a lot more consideration, and so it adds even more to that puzzle element. Kulchulik is known for doing very complex games that, that perhaps look simple, but then once you get into them, there's a lot of complexity. And just adding those very simple symbols, those few extra rules, really makes it into a Kulchulik game, but doesn't slow it down particularly. It's still, if you're playing a single round, 15 to 20 minutes, and then you're done. Cool, so Ronan will probably talk to you a little bit more about the game itself, but I want to talk to you about Carl Chudding. He's seen as kind of like a Marmite designer, a lot of people like him, a lot of people don't like him, there doesn't seem to be a lot of in the middle. Where do you, do you fall? Do you like his other games? Yes, I am heavily on the liking side. I'm a big fan of Impulse, I got that as soon as it came out. Really enjoy Impulse, the, the complexity of it. I've only played Glory to Rome the once, when I was just getting into games. And it felt like there was really something there that I wasn't quite ready for. I enjoyed it enormously, but I didn't understand it. I have just, I think yesterday in fact, backed the Kickstarter for Motonai, which is in a sense a re-implementation of, of Glory to Rome. It's a further refining of that system. Have you played the print and play of Motonai yet? Because we're actually talking about Motonai on this episode. I haven't. I intended to, and then to be honest was too lazy to do the, the, the printing. And <laughs> well, cutting. I have a copy printed and played. So maybe when I see you, I'll hand it over, you can give it a try. Oh, excellent. Yeah, um, that'd be great. In terms of Red 7, I played with the additional rule where you can draw the extra card, but I didn't play with the symbols. My reservations on the game was that I didn't see where the replayability was, and I didn't really see where clever play could come into it, or I could see different strategies to go down. I just had to play the hand of cards that I had drawn. Where is that replayability for you? Why do you think this is a keeper? There's replayability because of those additional rules. So I was still enjoying it at the base game alone. I think if we hadn't been talking about it tonight, I may have taken longer to add in those extra rules for the symbols. I think there's enough replayability in it as it is, so long as you're only playing one or two games at a time, 
it's not a deeply strategic game. It is a 15 to 20 minute game. But for me, I've played it probably getting on for 10 times now. Not an enormous number, but it was still feeling fresh. It was still feeling interesting. And it's great for introducing new people. But then when you do play it with gamers, once you've played a couple of hands, they begin to see the complexities. They begin to see the potential for strategy and for long-term thinking. I'm starting to think that I'm too simple for Red 7. That's a concern. There are those games where... People who really don't rate it will be saying, oh, this is too simple, there's not enough going on. There are certain games like this where I want to say, well, try it a couple more times. See if those things become apparent. See if maybe you got a couple of bad hands or you were still learning the rules the first time round. And then also, if you then add those additional rules about the symbols, people had put me off those. People like Martin, uh, Martin Griffiths, who is possibly a friend of the Game Pit. I don't know. <laughs> No, he should say no. All right. A foe of the game pit, then. (laughs) He's a foe of gaming in general. (laughs) Jaded. Bitter. And this is staying in. (laughs) I had heard from him. He had said he, he didn't think that the complexity was worth it. I do think what that really does is it balances the power of the high and low cards. So I felt that that really added the balance and it added slightly more complexity to that tactical puzzle. Yeah, I, I did feel like if someone drew a couple of sevens, they were likely to win, put it that way. Okay, so you're a fan of Red 7. What is the other shorter game that you love to play? The other, well, one of the many other shorter games, but the other one I've chosen for today is Battleline, a 2000 game by Rainer Knizia, published by GMT. This is a re-implementation of an older system, a game called Shot and Totten, and also, I discovered today, has been re-implemented unofficially as the Chronicles of Narnia Prince Caspian card game. Well, Much to the, the chagrin of Rannikinitia. <laughs> Sean's a big Prince Caspian fan. <laughs> well, he was very dreamy in the latest film. <laughs> as dreamy as Adam? No, don't be silly. I don't, don't, don't be silly. silly. But, you know, he's got a nice boat. So. <laughs> nice what? Boat. A nice bo- <laughs> boat. Boat. <laughs> <laughs> we'll pretend that means boat race and move on. Adam, battle line. So Battleline is a very simple idea, and I think the reason why it's been re-implemented so many times is that it's a very simple idea, very well executed. You have nine flags between the two players. It's a two-player-only game, and you have a hand of cards. Again, there's a basic and then a slightly more complicated version. In the basic version, there are six suits. Each suit has ten cards numbered one to ten. Players have a hand of seven cards. Each turn, you must play one card to one of the flags, until you have three cards on your side of the flag, or until that flag has been claimed. And what you're trying to do is put together poker hands, effectively. With those three cards, there are formations of varying strengths. So if you have three in a row of the same colour, that's the most powerful. Then three of the same value, uh, three of the same colour, three consecutive of any colour, and then anything at all, and there you're just comparing the total value. And what you're looking to do is have a higher formation on your side than your opponent. One of the things that I find interesting, that's a nice analytical element to it, is that you don't have to wait until all three of those cards have been played out. If you can look at the cards that are on the table and you can say, I know that you can't beat me, then you can claim the flag and you can reduce the ground that your opponent has to play. 
Again, this is a game with a small expansion, although it comes with the game, and these are the ten tactics cards. So after you've played each card, generally you would just draw another formation card. You can choose instead to draw a tactics card, and these will slightly break the rules. They'll allow larger formations or cancel the effects of formations, or they may be wild cards, which are, are a number of your choice, whatever it may be. This makes it a more involved game. Your opponent can only play one more tactics card than you have played. So it's possible that they can pick up a load, and then if you never play any, they're just there clogging their hand and preventing them from getting the number cards they want. So there are some more interesting decisions to be made. Again, though, the basic game alone, though, has enough going on. It's interesting enough just trying to put together those formations and that difficulty of having to play something somewhere and knowing that you're holding out, you're waiting to draw the right card to make a more powerful formation, but it means sacrificing something. There's also a small positional element to the game. Of the nine flags, the winner is either the player who captures five or the first player to capture three in a row. So there is an additional element of trying to put your best formations together, or else trying to put your best formations to break up those of your opponent. This is a very crowded field in the market. Two-player games with a shared central area to which you are playing cards. There are countless you know, lost cities and own reign of war. And we can go on and on and on with examples. Absolutely. Obviously, Battleline back from 2000 and even before that... What makes this still stand up 15 years later? I think particularly compared to, to something like Lost Cities, there is somewhat more going on. It doesn't feel like a traditional card game that you would play with a standard 52-card deck. With Lost Cities, you only have the one place where you can choose to play those cards. You're going on the appropriate coloured expedition. With Battle Line, there's a lot more decision-making is far more involved for such a simple deck of cards. There's a great deal of depth and a great deal of interest in the game. For me, nothing else has done something to this level of depth with such simple components. So I've never played this game. Have you ever played the Shot and Totem version? And when are we going to play the Prince Caspian version, Adam? I haven't played Shot and Totten. I believe there was never an English version released, and I've never seen the, the German version. I think Shot and Totten is in a sense, slightly simpler in that the cards only go up to nine. And the, the Prince Caspian version, I'm far too much of a, a fan of Rana Knizia to ever risk his ire by having it in You're the house. You're such a tease. You can't bring it up <laughs> and then whip it away. I have played Battleline, and I think it's excellent. I really enjoy it, but here's my one reservation on there. If I play against someone who's played ten times more than me, they're going to beat me. It is a game of real skill, and it can be difficult to find the right balanced opponent for you to have good games against. I think that's true. You do need an opponent who's played roughly the same amount as you. Ten times more, yes, they probably will beat you. Three or four times more, it's a more even game. And I think if that weren't the case, then it could have the opposite accusation levelled at it, that it's all about the luck of the draw. You couldn't possibly say of Battle Line that it just comes down to the cards you get in your hand. Actually, I say that every time I play it. Well, that's when you lose, obviously. I couldn't say it accurately. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a bonus that there is a skill level required and there is an extent to which you learn and you progress. But I played this a fair amount at LOB and then I introduced it to Selena, my girlfriend, and we've played it several times and over the 15 or 20 times we've played it, very quickly she caught up to the point where now we are winning, I think, a, a relatively even number of times. I think there's a point to which you understand the game. It's about learning the intricacies of it. 
and then it's balance. It's about the individual decisions you're making and how you play each game. Cool. Thanks, Adam. Right. I think you are about to unleash controversy into the game pit, Adam, with your choice for your least favourite short game. I believe so. In some ways, I didn't expect this to be quite so controversial. My least favourite game, uh, a short game which to me is enormously overrated, is The Resistance, the 2009 game designed by Don Eskridge and released by Indie Cards and Board Games initially, but now by, I think there was something like a dozen publishers listed on Board Game Geek. It has been endlessly expanded and re-implemented and reimagined. The game that is forever being played, particularly at London on board, every night somebody would come up and, and very excitedly say, do you want to join us for the Resistance or, or increasingly these days for Avalon? No, no, I never do. Thank you very much. I think... When it first came out, it seemed exciting. It was something new. It was a way of playing a traitor game and, and of having that back and forth, that social element, in quite a small and simple package. And, and over two or three games, it was something new and different and interesting. However, there's so much fiddliness to it. There's all of this business with making sure that you've got the right cards and everyone's got them the right way up and people close their eyes at the right time and that everybody understands how they're supposed to close their eyes and where you put them in. And all of that fiddliness contributes to no game. There's no game here. There's just a structured argument. It's just a, a casus belly in a box. You've just described every single one of our episodes as a structured <laughs> argument. I like a game with a traitor mechanic. Um, perhaps also controversially, I much prefer Saboteur, where you are playing a game where there's the possibility that somebody is taking an action because they have an ulterior motive. They might not be the saboteur, perhaps they're just trying to organise things in such a way that they get slightly more benefit out of the group winning. With the resistance, and particularly when it's played with a group who play it a lot, and perhaps a group who play it together a lot, you really don't have any choices. There's no way in which you can try to play it as an individual, try and explore the game space and say, oh, what will happen if I go this way or I try this thing? Because as soon as you deviate from the group think, then clearly you're the spy. That doesn't feel like a gaming experience to me. And in a way, I'd almost rather play Werewolf, where there's no pretense that there's any information or any game. Not to say, though, that I would like to play Werewolf. Well, Adam, firstly, you're clearly wrong, but we will attempt to make some sort of intelligent discussion because, I mean, wrong is just wrong. <laughs> so you gave us an example of a traitor game that you like in Saboteur. Yes. Avalon is as much a social game. That's what I found it for. That One of the main reasons I like it is that it gives you a chance to play with a group, talk, get to know each other, interact, heads up, and try and read each other. And, and that is part of the fun for me. I do actually understand the whole group think issue, especially if there's a group that's played it a lot and a lot a lot together. So that's, no matter what side I'm on, if I go into a group like that, I will play it differently and I will break their systems and I will break them out of their patterns of thought <laughs> because that makes for a horrible experience. It's the pe people play head down and they like ignore the first four votes because the fifth person is going to choose a team and they know exactly what they're going to do and sometimes they even vocalise it. Like, that is horrible. But that's not the game's fault, that's the group's fault. Anyway, I think that is the game's fault if the game encourages you to do that. If that's a way to succeed at the game, then that's what gamers are going to seek to do. If you're loyal, you're trying to put a pattern on the game. You're, if you can get everything patterned, everything structured, then it's easy to work out who's disloyal in whichever one it is. 
it's down to then the spies, or the minions of Mordred, to break up and add some random and add some chaos and do some unexpected things. And yes, if you deviate from the path, I can see that. But that's then where they've brought in extra roles and you've got hidden information and you've got a Morgana who looks like a Merlin and things like that. So I think they've tried to address it a little, but a bad group is still a bad group. And people who expect you to act in a certain way in almost any game are going to make that game not fun. I'm not sure it's it's that much of a defence of a game to say in the expansions they have addressed this, because it doesn't appeal to me enough that I would then want to seek out the expansions. I'm quite happy to say, even if you fix that, I'm good, thanks. I'm, I'm not But if bother. you say the problem comes up from a group that plays it a lot together, there are many games which are improved after many plays by adding an expansion and changing things up. So then that's sort of saying, well, any game with a good expansion is, is not that great a game. No, I think that's that's maybe a stretch. I, I can see your point. Wow, I, I'm all about stretching. <laughs> no, I, I okay, I, I can see your point, and and I see your point about the group as well. I've had some good games of it. I've had some good experiences playing it with lots of people who are new to it, people who were just fun to play with and fun to play that kind of game with. However. I still felt that we spent a lot of time just fiddling about and saying, OK, and remember, you're the, the ones that are going on the mission go here, and your others go here, and make sure you put them right so you can't see, and then make sure you're opening your eyes at the right time. And It just feels like a lot of faff, when if I just want to get to know those people, we could just have a chat. <laughs> oh, you're such a nice man. <laughs> the actual question, rather than like attacking you generally about your opinions, uh, was, you gave us an example of a traitor game that you enjoy. The other aspect, the social gaming... Is there a game that you like that that gives that social interaction and something for people to chat about and game while they're getting to know each other? No. <laughs> no, I'm 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 trying to think of one. I do like my chatting to be outside of the game. I'm I'm not a fan of co-ops. The thing I enjoy about gaming is the individual decision making and, and exploring of the game space and just saying, okay, I'm just gonna play my corner and do my things. And let's also have a conversation while we're doing that. Adam proving that one man is an island. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to and, and frequently do make terrible, terrible decisions. But I'm, I'm much happier to do that and just say, well, this is just me. And the decisions I'm making, rather than play cooperative or play semi-cooperative and have it all kind of discussed and hashed out. And, and so, in fairness to the Resistance, I was probably never going to enjoy it. But this was one of those games that I was introduced to before I had come to that conclusion. Well, for me, I kind of take on board what you're saying, Adam. I partly agree with you, partly disagree with you. I think there is a sweet spot for the resistance. I think, as Ronan said, if people get too familiar with it, they start developing patterns and little sort of group patterns together. Also, I think if people are completely alien to each other you put just seven random people together they'd have to play it three or four times before they start getting the benefit so in between that i think that there is a sweet spot when you kind of know what people's personalities are you kind of know what they're capable of so that's when you're not sure if they're lying and not sure what they're doing so that for me is when i enjoy the game i do take on board a lot of what you say definitely I think also there are conversational games which work in a very different way. So there are your creative type games. So things like Dixit, like Snake Oil, Mysterium, where it's slightly more abstract and you're getting to understand the way people think and the way that people create. Those types of games I really enjoy and I think that's a fun way to interact and to get to know people. I've never known a game of Dixit to devolve into an argument. 
You need to play it with my kids. <laughs> <laughs> just, just finally, Adam, I think what you're feeling about the resistance is the way that I feel about Coup, which is another London on board favourite. I just don't get Coup. I just don't understand it. I don't understand where you get your information from. Maybe it's just because I'm me neither. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm kind of with you all on that as well. That was one. It seemed like fun for for the first few games. Beautiful, Adam. Thank you so much for coming into the game pit and sharing your thoughts with us. We certainly hope to have you back again sometime. Any parting words for your public? Thank you for having me on, and and sorry if I I sound bunged up. I I do have a, a terrible cold at the moment. So in between our contributors, Sean and I are going to be popping in and out and discussing a couple of shorter games at a time which we've been playing recently and let you know our thoughts on them. And to begin is Sean. Right, Ronan, I'm going to start us off with a game called Pirate Dice. It's from Eagle Griffin Games, designed by Sean Brown, who did Spurs, A Tale in the Old West, and Alien Uprising, and Clint Heron, who did Robo Derby Express. It plays two to four players, and it's at the longer end of the spectrum of games we're going to be looking at in this episode, at 45 minutes as suggested playing time. But I think, especially with two players and with the shorter game, you can play it a lot quicker than that. What is it? It's a game where you have dice on a modular board with grids and they represent pirate ships then you have a separate set of dice and they are going to plan the route of that pirate ship and give you the actions for those pirate ships so what you're going to do in a yahtzee style everybody's going to roll their dice together save one roll them again until they've got the best set of dice in terms of the plan that they want to action then everybody reveals the dice at the same time and then as people reveal their dice They're on a player board and each dice is placed on a bell. For each bell, everybody does their first action. Then for the second bell, everybody does their second action. Now it sounds like it's just a simple plan your route, whoever plans it the best with the dice. Yeah, it doesn't work quite like that. There's going to be other things happen. These ships are able to fire their cannons and this is going to obviously damage the other ships around them. They're going to fire from both sides. You have anchors, which if aimed at the opposing players, that's going to make their dice for this round null and void. You have barrels that make people re-roll their dice. So all of a sudden, this simple plan your route game, get the treasure, get home, it becomes... A lot more than that, with people going in the wrong direction, people's ships being damaged, people ending up wedged against islands. Also, on this modular board, you've also got little traps, like where the wind and the waves push you, and whirlpools that spin you around. So that's generally what's happening in this game. It's a little bit of chaos. Why do I like this game? I think, for a start, Ronan, it's an excellent production. The board pieces look lovely. The dice, the big wooden dice, they feel lovely in your hands. I love, just love holding them. They're really nice produced dice. I think it's a really simple game. It's easy to teach. Even I remembered it and I hadn't played it in a long time. I only had to look up a couple of rules. I think the game is chaos, but it's fun chaos. There's loads of things going on. I think it's hilarious when someone gets turned around the wrong way. I love the barrels and the anchors, but Ronan's got some opposing views on that, so we'll leave that till later. 
Yeah, I just think this is an excellent little game. So, it's a super light game. It really is. In my opinion, it's so light. It's a game to play while doing something else. Having a conversation, watching TV, eating. There's really very, very little to it. It should really need to be played with higher player counts. I think two is too few. Three even is too few. You really want to get the most out of it. You want four because you want some interaction to be going on on the board. The problem with that is it becomes really frustrating. If you get stuck in a whirlpool or you get stuck behind a certain tide and you just don't roll what you need to roll, there's a waste of a turn. And you know what? You might waste your whole next turn as well not being able to do what you need to do. As you get more damage, your dice get locked in. You start with six hit points, four hit points, your fourth dice is locked in. And then you have to sit still in order to sort of heal and get back again. So that's another sit out a whole turn, which I don't think that's the best mechanism. But the most frustrating thing are those barrels and anchors. In my opinion, they're just nonsense. I think they're a Kickstarter stretch goal. In the basic rules, they're not in there. And actually, I'm going to say two points about this, but it looks like they were chucked in as an addition to the game after it was funded. And I just hate them. Because what is already quite a chaotic and fun game of rolling dice, you can't exactly plan what you want to do. If someone takes away a 90 degree turn, for example, in what you're trying to do, we completely change what you're doing for the rest of the turn. Suddenly you're stuck. You might get in that situation where the next turn you can't get anywhere anyway. You might be getting hit by cannonballs. Then you have to sit out another turn to heal. And for a quick light game, it's just frustrating. And the second thing is, the extra rules that have been added on top of the base game are not very well explained in the rulebook. And they don't make that much sense, Sean. The actual rulebook for the base game fine there's not that many rules to it the expanded bits that they've added in where you've got optional extras i'm not so convinced by i take on board your point but i take on board to a point even (laughs) i think they are a bit in your face and it's a bit too much in a two-player game but i think if there's a four-player game with lots happening i like them i like them in there i think it adds that little bit of extra i think it is such a light game that it doesn't matter that you had that bit of random in there, you had that bit of complete luck. Because I think it's just funny. I think it's funny if somebody gets hit by a barrel and ends up facing the wrong way. That's the only way that that's going to happen. But it's not It's not a funny, right, that's 10 seconds, it's kind of messed you a little bit, ha ha ha. Because you're locked in on a program, if that happens to you in the first term, which is when people try and do them, the rest of your turn's wasted... And like I said, you might get stuck behind something or in a whirlpool, which means the rest of your next turn's wasted. And in a 20-minute game, you're spending five minutes doing literally nothing. It, it just is frustrating. I get to the point and go, why am I doing this? I'm not having fun now. I'm not actually making decisions. The game's just playing me. I don't think there'd be enough without them. I find that a bit really funny. I find it amusing. Yeah, you've got the cannons that fire, but they only fire at the end of the fourth bell. And you can ram each other, which seems a little bit more trouble than it's worth trying to get someone lined up in your sights when you don't know what they're going to be doing. That is part of the fun of it, but I just love the fact that you can completely send someone off in the wrong direction and they've got to rectify. Now, that the laws of averages hopefully everyone will get a barrel i suppose there could be a game where one person just gets all the barrels like we had and that wasn't any fun for you and i see that but generally when i've played this game the barrels have been quite amusing i think they're a replacement for clever design i think clever map design which had people bottlenecking or taking different routes whatever it might be would be much more interesting than a load of random maps and then this in my opinion stupid mechanism 
I don't think it's a long, long enough game and a deep enough game to worry about that kind of thing. I just think it's 20 minutes of absolute chaos that's quite funny. That's why I like the game. It's something yeah, I different. I mean, I've probably come across as quite negative about it. The base game actually is, is quite fun and I can see myself playing it with my kids, with members of the family, whatever, other people's kids, having a bit of a laugh. I wouldn't play with the anchors and the barrels with kids because they get too frustrated and annoyed. But then everyone's sort of ramming into each other and shooting and seeing if you hit each other. I think that could be quite funny. Yeah, and going on to your second point, which the additional rule sets uh, weren't the best thought out. I think that's another thing that I like about it. Not that the fact they were terribly written, which they were, I completely agree. But I think this game is customizable. If you think outside the box and you think a little bit, what can I do with this? I think there's loads of things you could actually try. People come in from the other side of the board, all four corners. There's things like that. But I like this game. I think Ronan, he's, he's a bit mere by it. That was Pirate Dice. The first game I want to discuss this time around is Mortanine. So we have a bit of discussion with this with Adam this episode, but we're going to chat now because Sean and I have played it. It's been on Kickstarter recently. The Kickstarter campaign is now finished, but it will be getting a full release later in the year. So we've played the print and play version, which wasn't exactly final, but was pretty close to it. This is designed by Carl Chudik, designer of Glory to Rome, which is very relevant here. Innovation, Impulse, Red 7. You're going to hear his name in this episode. The publisher is Asmadi. Now, they also published Innovation, Impulse, Red 7, and also Flowerfall from Carl Chudik, which is another game we're going to discuss. This is for two to five players, kind of, although the base game is actually two or three players, and it takes between 10 to 30 minutes. In the game, you play as monks, and you work in a Buddhist temple, and you're attempting to make products... You do that by using one deck of cards, which everyone's going to use. And these cards have got a triple use on them. They each have got an individual product, so every single card is unique in the game. Each player has got a board, and where you play your cards to dictates how your card is used. On the top is the action you've chosen for your round, and indeed for the other players. And we'll go over that in a sec. To your left, it's an assistant who's going to help you when you choose particular actions. To the bottom, it's a resource to help you create products. And to the right is basically it's copies of products you've already made and if you have a product and you have a card that matches that type then it's going to score you points at the end of the game what does everyone do well you choose a task then you do everyone else's task they chose in the last turn and then you come back and do your own one you've chosen so you're creating chains of actions from other people's choices as well as your own which is very reminiscent of impulse you're going to be trying to make products these unique products and each product you make is going to give you unique powers you're going to do that by either using cards from your hand or cards you've stored underneath so it's all about the multiple play of these cards and, and what you're trying to do to win well you're trying to make these products every product that you've made is going to score you points and then if you have resources on the right hand side which are basically copies of those products they're going to score you points and that's pretty much what you're doing Sean, what are I? Ronan, when we played this game together a few times, it was a pain, an absolute pain for me to learn. It just didn't sit well. The mechanisms and having all these different piles of cards and different areas of your player start card, it, for some reason it just wouldn't go into my head. Sometimes I get like that with games and the, I can usually tell why this what I just don't understand why it just won't sit in my head. Now I think you had problems learning the game, didn't you, originally? Well, so I've only played Glory to Rome once and I don't think you've played it, have you? No, not yet. 
it's the spiritual success is what everyone's calling it's a very cliche phrase but it's kind of the, a new version of Glory to Rome if you like and I think if I knew that game better it might help with the rhythm of this because it has got a unique rhythm to it it was hard to learn in all honesty because I'm unfamiliar with the whole system and a lot of what you can do comes from understanding the individual cards now I know that's true in every card game but just from the rules I think it's very very difficult to sort of grok what the implications are of where you place the cards and how you start putting chains into effect and what the different strategies are and I think we just brushed the top of this game Sean and the last bit about it is that it's hard enough to get all those combos of cards but every single product you can make has got a unique power and some of them and this is a card tragic thing are absolutely insane and th there must be 30 overpowered cards in this game and as everyone says you've got 30 overpowered cards in the game and none of them are overpowered but I think the products just add that whole new level that makes it even more confusing Sean you know me, I like my economy games. I like to start off small and build up a nice little engine that will take me through. This game, I think, starts off looking like it's going to give you that option. And you're going to start off small and you build up this engine. But as you said, there are cards in it that can completely turn things around. You can take the other person's hand. People can take your stuff. And it's just like, whoa, that's just not what I thought this game was about. So maybe that's where it didn't really sit well with me is that... That engine isn't precious, it isn't protected. Things can happen to change that, and I uh, sometimes I don't like to be messed around with Ronan. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes you do. Sometimes I do. <laughs> it definitely, the game shifts on you, and when you think you're going down one route, and you think that's the way the game's going to work out, it, it completely flips around. Now, I think what we're getting from this is that we need to play it more really and that's what everyone says about Glory to Rome same for Motonai this is not a game to get out play once and think you're going to get it I think it's a game that grows with each play now I put some effort into this I printed it out and I cut it up and I sleeved it and all the rest of it so whenever you do that I think you're, you're more inclined to like a game but I think there's enough there for me to interest me to get me thinking that I want to become better at this my reservations are I'm not too sure about those special powers it was reminding me a little bit too much of innovation, which if you listened before, I really didn't like because I found it too swingy. I hope that Motonai isn't that swingy. It's quick enough, though, that perhaps that won't be such an issue. But it's an interesting game. I really like the aesthetic of it. I like the look of it. I think Sean doesn't, but I do. And oh, it's, it's kind of hard to recommend. But do you know what? It's freely available. So go and look at the print and play. Give it a go and see if you like it. It's really hard to tell. For me, I think I'm going to like it. I hope it doesn't get too swingy. Sean? Yeah, I'm, I don't think I'm going to like it, but I definitely want to play it again. I think it's going to take me a couple of games to really just get the mechanisms down and what I'm doing and how things chain together. I think once you understand the game, then you can actually start exploring the, the game under the game, if you like. So I definitely want to get to that point and see if my initial thought is that I just don't like it, it's too swingy, it's too mean for me. But I'll definitely give it another go. Lovely. And those are our thoughts on Motonai. So our next friend to join us on the Game Pit this time around to discuss her favourite and not-so-favourite short games is Bonnie Kate. Hello, Bonnie Kate, and welcome back to the Game Pit. Hello. 
That's a very sweet and quiet hello. That's because I'm very sweet. <laughs> but, but not, not so quiet. quiet. No. <laughs> so... In terms of yourself as a gamer, would you say you prefer shorter games, you prefer longer games, you don't so much like fillers? What's your general feelings around playing short games? I love short games. I will almost always play short games, mainly because I believe that the more games you play, the better. Why do you take this stance? I love games so much. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Too much sugar will cause that to people. So, forging onwards into your favourite games, tell us about a game that is short and you love it despite its shortosity. Yes, one of my favourite all-time short games is Kakerlaken Poker Royal, which is designed by Jacques... Z his name is hard to pronounce. Jacques Zymet? We'll go with that. It plays two to six, but it is definitely best with four or five. The way that it works is... Everybody has a hand of cards. The cards have animals on them, which are essentially suits. And you have to bluff your way into convincing people that if you are lying, you are actually telling the truth, and that if you are telling the truth, you are lying. And the person who does the worst at this loses, and everybody else wins. Okay. So it is a game in which there is one loser, and the rest of the group win. How group-dependent do you think Kakalak and Poker Royal is? What is there to stop the group from picking on one person and just taking the win themselves? Very little. The game does tend to work in that if somebody's doing quite poorly, everybody does gang up on them. But that is what makes it quite nice and short and it doesn't last an hour. You kind of just play one, it takes about 20 minutes, maybe 15, and then you play another round. But it can swing if that person who's doing poorly starts to, you know, kind of pick themselves up and start doing a lot better than the kind of group will attack somebody else. So I'm, I'm assured that I am completely wrong on this, but this game just feels a little bit random, especially at the beginning of the game. What sort of things do you need to look at to make your deductions about what people might have? I think it's not so much about pe what people have, but more reading people and if you're playing bluff or, you know, pretend that you don't know what you're doing and, oh, I've messed up, and then they think, oh, that person's a fool, and then you've, you know, kind of double-crossed them. Or thinking if you can see patterns in the way that people play, a lot of the time what people do is if they lie and then they're caught out, the next thing they'll do is tell the truth, and then they get caught out again and they alternate and they don't realise they're doing it, which is quite funny because it's really easy to predict. Yeah, but it's worse if you get in a run and you get caught lying until you lie again, and then you lie again, and then you're like, oh, what do I do now? You can just lose in straight up half a dozen goes if you just stick to one plan. <laughs> so so this one is, is a re-implementation or an, a sort of almost an expansion to Kakalakan poker. What did the royal cards actually add? So it is the same as Kakalakan except that in this version each suit has a royal card which has a little crown on it. So instead of saying, oh, it's a rat or it's a bat or a fly, you could also say it's royal. And if someone takes a royal card in front of them, they get a bonus card from the middle, which is bad, because that obviously means more cards in front of you, just how you lose. Okay, lovely. I agree with you. I really like Kakalaka Poker Royal. I think it's a lot of fun, like a lot of the games in that line are, like Kakalaka and Salat and other ones. Moving on, Bonnie Kate, we'll see the next short game which you enjoy playing. I have recently gotten into Splendor, which was released last year and is designed by Marc-Andre. It's very simple, again, you've got a selection of gems that you can take on your turn. You can take either three different ones or two of the same, and then you use those gems to buy 
cards, which then build up kind of a reserve of gems you can keep reusing, and the first person to get 15 points from those cards wins. And so it's basically an abstract. I would say there's very little theme, but it's a really nice abstract, and I love abstract games, and it's very, very simple to explain. You just pay for things with the gems. Everyone can kind of get it. So this one was really, really well received. It got a Spiel de Jahres nomination, and lots and lots of people absolutely loved this, but I just never really saw it myself. I just felt that it was kind of too tactical. There was no strategy to the game. You're always reacting. Not always a bad thing, but I felt this one was too heavily weighted in the tactical section. I don't mind that so much, but I really love pure abstract games like Ingenious. And that is a little bit less reactive, I suppose, but it's just that kind of planning things and looking at what your options are. And of course, you can screw someone over by taking the card that they want. But if you have planned it well enough and have built up the right kind of selection of cards, you can get around that and just keep taking things. There are more and more points. I think that some of the strategy in the game and some of the interaction Bonnie Kate comes from that reservation of cards. You can see if there's a card that perfectly fits what someone else is trying to do and where they're building towards, and you can take that into your hand to slow them down. How much of that has come into your play, and how important is that one mechanism into giving it a little bit of depth? We had a game we were playing last weekend. It plays two to four, and I think it actually does play really well with two. Essentially, some of the victory points are if you get a certain number of cards of a specific color, you get extra points. All of them needed white cards to achieve the goal, and so the person I was playing with just kept taking every single white card, even if he couldn't build it, just to stop me from getting them, which basically stopped me from winning, because uh, I never was able to take a white card. That sounds like a magnificent player. I can only applaud that. He's a terrible person with no respect, but I am going out with him. It was a poor choice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Splendor with Bad People is a good game. Talking about bad people, good games, Red 7 is your choice for a shorter game which you don't enjoy as much. Now, Red 7 has had Adam in this episode bigging it up and telling us that it's one of his favourite games. Why has it not hit home for you? Oh man, my main issue with Red 7 is you can lose in your first turn. Even though it does only last about 5 or 10 minutes, there'll be some card play and then it'll get to your turn and you'll look at your hand of 7 cards and just go, no, that won't, no, no, no. How do none of these work? And it's not based on what you've done or anything to do with your choice. It's just you cannot play them because it just doesn't work, which I find really frustrating in games when I don't have any control whatsoever. And you can get the kind of same thing later on where it's not that you're going to lose, it's just that you only have one option, and I find that there aren't enough times in the game where you get to make a decisive move, and you're like, this is definitely going to be better for me later on. It's just kind of, well, I have to do this because I have no other option. It is a bit of an auto play. So, Bonnie Kate, I asked Adam when he talked about Red 7, was he a Carl Chuddick fan? Had he played any of the Carl Chuddick games? And I'll ask the same one to you. I've played two of his other games. I've played Glory to Rome and I've played Innovation, and I thought Glory to Rome was a decent game. It's fun. It can, again, like Red 7, sometimes feel like you don't have a tremendous amount of choice, but it is still a good game and I like it. I've also played Innovation, which I really actively disliked. One of the reasons being that the text on the cards is very tiny and everybody has lots of them and it's just almost impossible to track what everyone else is doing and it is an interactive game. I believe you and I learned Innovation together 
with Martin Griffiths, who came up in Adam's uh, chat as well. So, Martin Griffiths and Red Seven and Carl Chellick are inextricably linked. Galactically, possibly. Yeah, I hated that game of Innovation. I never went back to it. I'd, people keep telling me it's a good game, but it just appears to be too, too random to me. Now, you talked about luck off the draw in your opening hand and it is very important in the game and you can sometimes feel like you're completely railroaded in what you can and can't do the game offers a couple of different ways of playing in that you can draw a card if you play a high card or there are symbols on the cards which you can use which mix things up a little bit have you played with either of those mini expansions contained within the game do you feel like they give you any more options and they mitigate this problem I've played with the expansion where you can play a card to the center, which allows you to draw another card, but it still feels like drawing that new card doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have more options. It might be that you're still kind of screwed. One of the other issues I had with it was because of the tie-breaking is so important because you will end up a lot of times, you know, it's highest card or it's, you know, most even cards and somebody has a six and... You know, you've got a four as your highest, and you can never get like a higher card than like a red six, or they just have something that's higher, and you're never going to be able to top that. And because they're going before you, they can always beat you in the tie break because you can never get more cards out. If you could play more than one card at a time, then it might be different because obviously you'd be using up your cards faster, but then you might be able to just do things a bit differently. I think you'd have more choice if you could do that. No, I actually agree with you with regards to your criticism of the game I think that's the one thing that draws me back on it is that I feel like you're a bit too railroaded and you haven't got many choices thank you very much for joining us again in the game pit I hope you had fun thank you for your thoughts and we'll speak to you again soon thanks Bonnie Kate So we're back with a couple more games to discuss and we're going to kick off this segment with 12 Realms. This is designed by Ignacio Corral and other than 12 Realms and its many expansions, he hasn't designed anything else that's been released. It's published by Mage Company, who you may well remember published Hoyuk, Wrong Chemistry and Aether Captains. It's for 1-6 to six players, again once expanded, and it takes around 90 minutes. This is a fairy tale themed cooperative game in which you select various realms depending upon player count and the realms are all themed around some sort of fairy tale trope. Dark lords specific to each realm are attempting to invade them and the players take on the role as fairy tale heroes. So it might be D'Artagnan or Robin Hood or Snow White. There's numerous, numerous characters available now for this game and I think it's 12 that come with the base game, so there's plenty of choice there, and they've all got slightly different powers. So how does the game itself play? Well, each turn, you're going to draw cards from a deck that's made up of cards specific to whichever realms you're using, and you turn over a number of cards depending upon the number of players, and those cards show you either minions of the Dark Lords, which are going to appear in the realms, they show you treasures, which are going to be there to be able to collect, to help you buy things in the inn and upgrade your character, or artifacts, and each realm has got three separate artifacts, you need to collect the three if you're going to defeat the Dark Lord for that realm when they eventually turn up. And when are they going to turn up? Well, the minions are in play, and at the end of each round, the number of minions in play is going to push a threat level up for each realm, and when that threat level gets to a certain level, the Dark Lord's going to appear, and it's down to the players to defeat them. So, 
how do you defeat minions and the Dark Lords? Well, for the minions, they have a set of symbols on them which correspond to skills of the heroes. A hero has got its own character sheet and it's got a set of skills and they're represented by tokens. They could be heart for charm or gold for money or a sword for fighting ability and they all have wings to allow them to move around. Even when you come across a minion, it's going to have a certain number of skills you're going to have to spend in order to defeat it and you simply move your tokens from unused to used. You say, right, I'm spending this token and this token to defeat that minion as long as you're in the same area as it. What you're trying to do basically as heroes is plan how to use your skills. Like say, you can use treasure and gold to upgrade, go the in by cards which will give you more skills which will able to fight and carry on again and then when you get to the dark lord you must hold all three artifacts of a realm and then they have got skills which you must match as well and hopefully you're going to be able to defeat them before the threat gets too high and the realm is overrun sean your initial thoughts on 12 realms i'm not a big fan of the manga style art in it but it's a very, very impressive looking game, Ronan. It's boards, really striking, colourful, beautiful artwork. The miniatures are absolutely fantastic. So, first impression, and you even get those plastic coins that look actually like the gold coins. And There's nice production values to this, Ronan. There are. It does look good. Each realm looks distinct. It has its own distinct board, its own distinct set of cards, and there's no difficulty in working out where each card goes. There are different types of minions for each realm, and they all have individual sculpts of models. Every hero's got a pretty detailed figure with it. And I think it all adds to the theme, and the theme is really important in this, Sean, and probably the major selling point for it. Yeah, I think it almost sits alongside something like Mice and Mystics. It can be played by adults, but I think it's aimed slightly towards the younger market. I think even more so than Mice and Mystics. Yeah, I think Mice and Mystics is a quite detailed, involved game, and this is a lot lighter, especially at the introductory level. Yeah, the introductory level is very simple. Mechanically, it's pretty simple. It's about planning your turn, how best to use your token. That in itself is going to be okay for children 6, 7, 8. It's around that level, mechanically, honestly. And in terms of difficulty as a co-op, especially on that base game, learning game, really, really easy, Sean. Is it too easy? I think for adults, it is too easy. I think when we first played it, we played with three adults. And we were kind of breezing through it. There were some interesting things to do. And it was nice to be able to go to the shop and upgrade your character. That's a nice little touch. And having the separate types of creatures in each of the realms. They're all nice little touches. But I think, as you said, as a cooperative game at the basic level, yeah, I think it was too easy for adults. And definitely one that you'd want to involve your children with. You know, I'm kind of torn on this whole difficulty issue because the fact that it is slightly easier means that it's not a game I can really get out with a game group. But it is a game I think I could allow younger children to make their own decisions and not worry that they're going to get overwhelmed within a couple of rounds and allow them to have some exploration and see if they can work out how to do things better rather than the game just absolutely mushing them and you having to guide them too much. All players are equally important. You've also got a realm that you start off in. And if somebody does get overwhelmed, you can go and help them. As your character can go and help the younger children, for instance. And give them sort of little hints on what they could be doing. But yeah, definitely they can be making their own decisions. They're not going to lose the game in a couple of turns on this one. The one, and this is probably my main issue with the game, Sean. The main problem is, if you're doing too well and killing all the minions, the threat will never climb. 
which means the Dark Lord will never come out, which means you'll never finish the game. So you almost have to, at some point, when you're ready to fight the Dark Lord, stop fighting the minions deliberately, if you are doing that well, and just let the game run on for a while to allow the Dark Lord to come out because allow you then to defeat it. There's a slight kink there and that you can do too well in the game. Yeah, I think we found that the stronger we were getting with the more powers that we had at our disposal from going to the shop where you upgrade yourself, the more we were cleaning up in the board. And maybe the first turn where that mark went up a couple of notches or three or four notches, it was only creeping up one or two from maybe the second round in. So yeah, you're absolutely right. You probably do have to collect the things that you need to collect in order to be able to fight the Dark Lord and then let chaos reign for a little while and then probably try to rein it in towards the end. So I don't know, maybe that's an actual decision in the game that when do you let the darkness sort of envelop you and when do you when do you sort of stop that happening so it doesn't get out of control? You're getting poetic on me. I am. <laughs> it's a poetic game. It's a beautiful game. It's inspired me. <laughs> Now, there are modules within the base game itself. You can play with a dark player who has some control over the dark minions. You can play with a dark tower which which concentrates the, the forces of evil in certain areas. And they've expanded it. And I think we have to mention that there is expansion right now if the game's interesting. Your bedtime stories on Kickstarter finishes on the 18th of June. So have a look at that if you this sort of review is tickling you if you have got a game group the family or younger game group that this fills the niche for Sean the final thoughts of 12 realms it's a game that I would probably get if my son was a little bit older my son's only two he's going to be three soon so I've got a long way before he gets to the stage where he's going to be playing anything like this I think it's certainly something that I would contemplate when he's a little bit older I think having the modular difficulty added in, so you increase the difficulty in waves, it's not just a case of there's a basic game and there's a harder game. I think that's interesting, I wouldn't mind exploring that and seeing if they're at the higher levels, if it does become a game that adults can actually enjoy and get their teeth into. But for now I think it is strongly in the children's market. Yeah, I think so, I mean my youngest daughter is nine, she would well enjoy it. Again, it looks beautiful. It's got a different theme, not the same old thing you've seen before. The theme is appealing to children, so it's one to keep an eye on anyway. It's a unique game. I haven't played anything quite like it. Sean, what would you like to take us on to now that we've dissected 12 rounds? Well, I'd like to take you into a little town called Hemlock, Ronan. This is a game from Small Box Games and designed by John Cloudus of Omen Reign of Fire fame, a game that we both thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed. It plays two players in a time frame of about 30 minutes. What is it? Well, theme-wise, the town of Hemlock is in a shroud of darkness for many, many years, and it's about to come out of the darkness and into the daylight. And all the denizens of the dark are making their little last-minute plots to seize power before the daylight comes around. So they're in the dark alleys and the dark taverns of, of Hemlock. It's a card game very much like Omen Reign of Fire, where you've got the central areas that you're combating over. Each of the central areas represents a place in Hemlock, and each of those central cards have a different shape grid where you can place your markers of your colour. And it's an area control game from that perspective. You're each going to have the same deck of cards, and each of these cards represents a character from the town of Hemlock. They all do different actions, 
that can either scupper the other player, help you, and you're trying to win power for those central areas. At the end of a round, you're going to have the scoring round, and you're going to get points for whoever got dominance in each of the areas of Hemlock. What I haven't mentioned, there are also little bonus cards that you can obtain that are going to give you little extra powers that you choose when to play. There is also going to be one of the areas of the town blocked off each round. So, Ronan, there's not a lot more to it. It is a very quick game, very much in the Omen Reign of Fire style. It is in the style of Omen Reign of Warshawn, but I'll start with the positive. At least they've gone for a different theme. And with the presentation and with the whole night going to day issue and with the different characters having very different powers, if it doesn't feel exactly thematic, it does feel at least... Like it has a different theme to other similar games, that makes any sense. I think it's quite unique, and one thing I didn't explain is, after each round where you score, a day card gets added into the deck. The card tell you which area is blocked off. You score after each day card, not just at the end of the whole round. So it's, it speeds up as you go along as well. But yeah, you're right, I think the theme in, although a bit strange, I think it's certainly different and it's quite engaging. Charming maybe, in a funny way. I think one of the drawbacks we found is that the game does accelerate as you go through. The game ends when all those bonus cards have been taken. It seemed to me like those stacks were a little bit too small, and it wasn't likely you were ever going to get through to the whole fifth round, because, well, for us anyway, we absolutely emptied those out really quickly every time we played, and it meant the card draw became quite important, because if certain more powerful cards got stuck at the bottom of your deck, you were never going to see them. And it tends to be the player who got the more powerful cards out, got an edge, and it was hard for the other player then to catch up. Yeah, I think you've just gone straight to the crux of the matter there, Ronan. I'm a man who likes a crux. You do like a crux, God bless you. It is so dependent on that card draw. Our very first game, when we didn't know how many of each card were around, I think you drew the three cards that can either add cubes without winning the round to those central areas, or take somebody else's cubes away. And one that even adds one of yours and takes someone else's away. So me thinking, okay, there's going to be plenty of those in the thing. I'll, I'll just do the same to him in a couple of rounds later. And that was a big swing. That was like a five or six point swing in the game where we only had like maybe 10 or 11 points in it. Mine never came out, Ronan. They just didn't come out. I had no way of getting back at you. I felt like it was strategic brilliance by me. It was strategic brilliance. That shuffle was a thing of wonder. That's how I like to think of it. <laughs> <laughs> Just to get back to your point about those bonus power cards, there's so many cards. You said that the stack's quite a small stack. There's like maybe six or eight cards in the, each pile, and there's only three piles. And it feels like every other card that you pick out of your deck gives you one of those just for playing it. They've just whittled down really quickly. That was strange. Just, I think you threw the timing off a little bit. Again, I've, I said about Pirate Dice as well, and I have to say about this one, is that it was maybe a little bit too frustrating in that your plans could be wrecked quite easily by the other player, and, and it was just there was a little bit irritating. It might have been a little bit too much. You know, when someone stole your card and moved it across to their side, it was a little bit too irritating for, again, the depth of gameplay here. See, I felt with this one, it offered the bones of a deeper game than Pirate Dice. I think Pirate Dice, it doesn't flatter to deceive. It tells you exactly it's going to be a quick 20-minute romp and no, no bones about it. This one, 
it has the skeleton. So I'm, I'm sticking with the dark themes here, Ronan. As the skeleton of a deeper game. I just expected more of it. And you're right, it is so frustrating when somebody takes something that you've worked so hard to win. You've maybe laid seven cards to win one area to get that key position in the middle that's going to make it difficult for the other person. And they've taken it away with one card. Ouch. Yeah, it is a bit ouch. This is a solid game, though. It was less frustrating than Pirate Dice, anyway. I think the theme is quite appealing. My last point, really, on it is... In the last Kickstarter, this came with Omens. It was an Omen campaign, but Hemlock was available. And I think that's the biggest disservice they could have done to the game because it's relatively similar in that you're contesting a shared area in the middle. You're playing cards, you're trying to get combinations, but it pales in comparison to Omen. And I think that we said it after our plays of it. If it had been on its own, we probably would have been more forgiving to it. But as soon as it came in the same sort of box and in the same package as Omen, it's just the inferior game of the two, I'm afraid. You've said it exactly how I wanted to say it, Ronan. I was looking forward to playing Hemlock. I really was. I thought Omen Reign of Fire is such a fantastic game. And as you said, it comes in the same black box, the same, even a sticker, very similar sticker that you get free in it. It's a nice sticker, though. It's a nice sticker. It look lovely on your on your cabinet. Let's see Omen one. And my Hayabusa one. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, moving on. I just was so disappointed. And yeah, the frustration really kicked in. I felt I was working hard for things and they were just getting taken away at that whim, basically. And it was too frustrating for me. The other things that it did well weren't enough. Unusually, I think I'm a little bit more positive about this than you are. That was... Hemlock! Joining us now is one of our very favourite contributors to the game pit. He's back. It's Puria. Hey, Puria. Hello, Ronan. Thank you for having me back. How are you today? I'm not bad at all. Excited to talk about short games? I am indeed, and I brought my bag full of goodies just to talk about. Because <laughs> you have to have things in front of you to be able to talk about them. Exactly. <laughs> You're a unique snowflake. Shorter games, Puria. Big fan of shorter games, more a fan of longer games. Uh, do you play them often? What's your thoughts generally around these games that we use to fill in game nights? Oh, I love my long games. We've got loads and typically always get to try at least one or two longer games during the evening. But for me, it's essential that we have a few shorter things just to relax a little bit. But most importantly, as you know, we also do a bit of hosting for the club. And it is one of those cardinal rules as a host to have lots of smaller games, both just to keep the complexity down a little for new members, but also to be able to quickly kind of fill in the gaps as different people approach on the evening. It's going to be like an expert guide to hosting a game group from a hosting veteran. Hosting 101, absolutely. I like it. Right, moving onwards and upwards, 101. First game that you really enjoy with a shorter game length for I've had the boss in my bag for at least a year now, and I typically do not leave the house without it. It is an older game from about 2010, published by Blackrock Editions originally. The designer was Alien Ollier plays in about half an hour. The game is a area control game with hidden information that's all themed about 
being the boss of various cities in America. So people will be vying for Kansas City, New York, Memphis, Detroit. Successfully doing so, they will get victory points. The person with the most victory points, as usual, will win. For me, the boss is perfect, mainly because it's really quick to teach. At the same time, it can actually have a little bit of a depth in terms of strategy. So for veteran players, they typically enjoy coming back to it as well. And best of all, it is quite easy to mix and match. Even newbies will generally have a good chance of winning after the first round. The best thing for me is the expansion, which recently also turned the game into a six-player team game, which is absolutely fantastic. Brings in that additional complexity, but also the additional pleasure of having to actually work with someone who you're not allowed to really directly trade information with. As far as I'm concerned, spot on, quick to play. It was quite cheap to pick up at Essen a few years ago. So... One of the main elements within this game is bluffing, in that you have some information, you're trying not to let other people know what's in your hand and where you're really going after with your gangsters. How much is the bluffing important to this game, Priyan, and how does it mix with other popular games at the moment, shorter games, which are all about the bluff? Bluffing is definitely the most fun part of the game. It's something that's typically lost on new players in terms of sometimes sacrificing one or two of your agents to make certain locations seem more interesting than they are and in return sometimes holding out and actually not going and committing to some of the more valuable sites to the very last round. It is a lot easier to play than some other hidden information games that play in the same time. So for me I think it's probably better suited to new players. So the game came out originally five years ago and that expansion you're talking about came out two years after that and it came out in like a see-through plastic packet. It didn't look good, it didn't look professional. And the game has kind of struggled to get some traction. As you said yourself, you picked it up cheap at Essen. It's been in bargain bins. But it has been picked up by Blue Orange Games to be distributed in the US later this year, hopefully. Do you think with Blue Orange behind it, it's got the ability to be a big hit as a shorter game? I really do hope so, because I know the publishers, Black Rock Editions, have done a few other games that meet the same size, game, complexity and playtime, which all seem to be very clever, but never really hit mainstream. And it's a real shame, because I think something like The Boss specifically is actually very much suited to the kind of micro game games culture that's coming out at the time. Yeah, they did Armadora, didn't they? Which I think was another fairly clever little game. Yeah, and before that, there was Blackrock City. All of which, I think, had interesting elements. They, as a package, don't think really work quite as well as the boss ever did. Which is also why I think Blue Orange Games probably chose to reprint the boss first. It might, who knows, lead to reprints of the other two games. But I think, in terms of mass appeal, the boss is by far the most appealing. Okay, we're going to move on now to your second shorter game that you enjoy playing. My second game is a classic as far as I'm concerned, and I know I've already talked about this on a previous episode, so I'm going to keep it short, but that is Tuluva. The game was originally published in 2006 and has just recently seen a reprint as a Kickstarter in a deluxe edition. The game is a tile-placing game, which plays not only in 2D, but uniquely also moves upwards. The game is typically marked as around 45 minutes, 
But I think with experience of having played this well over a dozen times now, anyone who knows what they're doing can probably knock this out in maybe 30 minutes. The theme is of a growing volcanic island and tile placement represents the spread of that island. The goal of players in Tuluva is to get rid of two of the three types of building that they have in front of them, each of which is subject to different placement rules. It is, as far as I'm concerned, one of the few games that, like Carcassonne, is fairly quick to play, but unlike Carcassonne, introduces slightly more strategies. It is visually stunning, plays quickly, and is typically one of those fantastic games that everyone wants to play again once they've finished the first game. I'm going to put it to you that everyone wants to play this again for two reasons. A, because it does look good, and people like to play with games that look good. And the second thing is, it's a bit obscure, and it's a bit hard to get your head around. Now, the 3D aspect is part of that. It's definitely our brains are not necessarily wired to think in three dimensions very well, as found out by many games where you try and do this. But the other part of it is the whole scoring and how to play well and how to divide up your villages and get to the third level and what have you. Is it just a bit too obscure for the length and weight? Is it a bit too hard to get your head around how to play well? It, I admit, is probably not one of those games that you can just play once and leave. It demands second play, as you say, to get a little better at the strategy. And in fact, some of the slightly more obscure strategies don't really become apparent on the first play. But I think that's complexity that's worth the effort. And most players, despite the slight sense of confusion, typically are more than happy to invest that straight away, which generally shows that it's engaging enough, pretty enough, and quick enough. In terms of tile layers... For 2D tile layers, the normal, what you'd expect, all Carcassonne-esque, it almost seems like that space is limited now and everything ends up getting compared back to Carcassonne, called a Carcassonne clone, to an extent. Is 3D tile laying the way to go? Why haven't we seen more 3D tile layers? And is the best 3D tile laying game just building the landscape for Heroescape? <laughs> I will leave that area of expertise to Lloyd. Um, (laughs) But as far as the complexity goes, I think it's all about manageable complexity. So if you look at Tuluva, yes, it's 3D, but really it's more of a pizza box universe, if you will, because you at most really are going to ever build three tiles on top of each other. And that's not really going to overwhelm anyone. It's a little bit like playing Taurus, where you are building upwards, but only ever a couple of tiles. It's all gradual, it's all manageable, and it introduces just about the right amount of complexity to make it interesting without making it overwhelming. You know, I take... I'm sitting here feeling inferior because Torres broke my head a little bit. What? <laughs> we played it together! <laughs> you should know that I struggled. I was like, what? You do what? Torres is amazing. It might have been your rules explanation. That's probably true, but Torres definitely deserves more than Another 3D game we've played together, Pueblo. Yes, Pueblo's an interesting one because I really like Pueblo, but I think Pueblo can suffer a little bit in terms of its replayability. First time everyone plays it, they're like, wow, that was fun. Second time they play it, third time they play it, and then most people are pretty much done with it. Personally, I have no real interest to play that again, whereas Tuluva, I am always happy to bring out of the bag. And seeing as we're branching off into sort of 3D games for some reason, our own little mini episode, have you played the new edition of Medina? I have not, actually. I own the original edition. 
but I understand that there's only real one new rule that they've introduced to streamline things a little bit in terms of the introduction of the well. But Medina is another one of those which it's not really 3D. The pieces are structured and it makes a very pretty board, but in essence you're playing a 2D game. The only thing with Medina is it's really much more of a brain burner and most people who play it generally enjoy it and then are happy never to see it again for two years. <laughs> I'm a bit like that Java, which is a much deeper 3D toll layer. I've played it a couple of times and wow, that was that was a real workout. But then I can't handle Torres, so who am I to say? <laughs> I think you wanted to break our rules and have an honourable mention, which you've got 20 seconds to do. Go. Cool. That is a slightly older game called Take 5. Now, most people are instantly going to confuse that with Six Nymphed. It is in fact... I did. Yes, indeed. Uh, mainly because some obscure Dutch version is also called that. The game is a successor to Six Nymphed and is marketed as a slightly more strategic version, which it is. But at the same time, with lots of players, it is still very chaotic. And I personally actually find it a lot more fun. So for anyone who's got Six Nymphed in the collection as a filler... I would strongly suggest tracking down Take 5. It's very cheap. It's just as much fun. And I believe, at least in the UK, there is the German version, which is quite easy to get hold of, called Hon Oxen. Nice. Okay. So we've gone over some games that you like and enjoy playing. Can you give us a shorter game that you haven't enjoyed quite so much? I can indeed. And for me, that would be Orongo, published last year by Ravensburger and the designer is the always prolific Rainer Knizia. The game is all about the mysterious Easter Island and is a auction bidding game with a closed bidding mechanic. The game is not popular but I've definitely seen it around the club several times now and have been made to play it twice. Something which I don't necessarily completely reject, but do utterly bore under. So for me, it is also, to make things worse, plagued by one of the stupidest decisions ever made in terms of production. Namely, the little shells used to mark the board and also for the bidding, which have a fantastic tendency to roll all over the place and are one step short of being just about as bad as the pearls were in Abyss. Oi, you leave Abyss alone, I like Abyss. It's a good, less than an hour long little set collecting game. Anyway, Arongo has not made a splash. Every time Reiner Knizia announces a game, wasn't a game announced from him, especially around Essen, everyone gets excited and thinks, this could be it, this could be the return to form. I think I've heard issues around the auction mechanism in Arongo. Is that where the key of the mechanical problems are for you? I don't actually think so, because I don't really mind the auction system. And in fact, some of the, or let me rephrase that, the only real charm I found in the game was in the auctions. The bit that I found problematic was mostly the board, actually, because there's a certain amount of board control going on. The board isn't variable, which for logistical reasons I understand, because it would probably make a nightmare to set up but that makes it kind of slightly boring. The bag draw is fairly random, which means I'm not really playing very strategically. I'm really just playing tactically. And given that, I've got a bidding system I have to kind of control and plan for when I want to spend, when I don't want to spend. 
but in contrast I have a random tile draw which means I don't actually know when I'm going to get the tiles I'm really after so I find that mix more problematic than I actually do the bidding mechanic. So I feel a little bit sullied just talking about the good Dr. Knizia and not mentioning something good to do with him because I'm a fan of many of his games. Can you think of a quicker Reiner Knizia game that you would recommend? Absolutely and that would be for me Samurai. It's been on my shelf for ages and beyond Tuluva it is generally the second game I will take with me to Newbie Nights. It is fantastically easy to teach. It is in terms of strategy wonderfully quick for players to pick up. It suffers from Kinesia scoring syndrome but once you get over the hurdle of explaining that generally most people get on with it very well and it plays extremely quickly and also scales really well between three and four players as well. Uh, Samurai is one of the games that we like to get out, myself and Puri and whoever's with us, and I have never beaten him at it. Oh, shucks. I know, I'm coming across as a bit special, aren't I, in this <laughs> little segment? It's like your dominant species. Oh no, that's getting a bit more serious. <laughs> I will see you again, you know, it always will be the end of a phone line. <laughs> I'm going to throw a quick Rider Kitsy game that I really enjoy, Kingdoms. I'm sure I've mentioned it before in terms of area control on the board. I'd go with that one. I was talking about tile laying, there not being much new to it in terms of building a board with tiles, but this is a tile layer that I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy. Any thoughts on Kingdoms? No, I like Kingdoms actually. And it's not to say that he had a golden age, but generally I think most of the... But he did. Yeah, he did. <laughs> Okay, any parting thoughts for your public career? I think it is a fantastic idea for anyone who's not just hosting, but generally going to game nights to have at least three or four quick games in the bag with them. I'm sure other members are going to give their recommendation, but the only one I can give is grab one or two of them and you will be well served. Thanks for joining us and we'll catch you soon on the Game Pimp. Cheers, mate. We are keeping the shorter games coming. And, Sean, a shorter game about other games. It's all getting meta. Oh, there you go. Ronan, I am going to talk about Board Game Geek, the card game. This game came through Kickstarter via Game Salute. Caused a bit of a stir when it did. It's designed by Candy Webber, who I believe has something to do with Board Game Geek, or I'm not sure what. She designed a handful of really small two-player card games that haven't really sold any. The highest one was in its 20s in terms of number of owners. But this is her first big release. It plays two to six players in the time frame of about 20 minutes, although I've played it with two players and it's actually quicker than that. What does Board Game Geek do? Well, first off, the cards... They're all collections of board games in various categories. So you've got the abstract, you've got the thematics, you've got the war games, etc. So, and there's eight of these categories and they're all coloured. And essentially what you're doing is you're trying to get a board game collection. The actions in this game are you can buy a board game from the selection on the table. You can play a board game, i.e. play the colours collections onto your table and they will score for you at the end of the game. You can collect board games. 
So you're looking for one of each of the colours. And you can maths trade. So anybody who has been on Board Game Geek has seen the maths trade community. Myself and Ronan certainly take part in that. That just allows you to take a random card from each player and a random card from the deck. And you each choose one. So it's like a little maths trade. You don't know exactly what you're going to get. All this game is is two types of set collecting. There is nothing to this game. It's so light. It's called Lighty McLaterson. Ronan, that literally is all there is to do in Board Game Geek the game. I can see why people back this, okay? Board Game Geek is a fantastic, fantastic tool for us. We talk about it all the time. If you're into this hobby, you, you pretty much have to be on Board Game Geek account, I, I guess. So people backed it to support Board Game Geek. I get it. I think it's a little bit funny that the Board Game Geek name itself has been attached to a game which is quite so light, but I haven't played it. I, I will back Board Game Geek in other ways. The theme, though, is obviously is genius for target audience. If you make a game about games, it immediately appeals to gamers. Does it work, though? Does it feel like you're building a collection? Does it feel like you're in math trade? Does it feel in any way thematic? Reading the rules, I actually was starting to get a bit hopeful about this one. I bought this game just because it had the Board Game Geek logo on it and it had lots of games and some of them are in my collection and some of them are among my favourite games. So it's just a cool thing to have, like a set of top trumps or something like that. I wasn't expecting much. But reading the rules, with the mention of the mass trade and buying a game and playing and collecting and bonuses for rare games, etc., I was starting to get a bit hopeful, but when you start playing it, it is just about the colours. <laughs> You're looking for sets of red cards and sets of yellow cards, and, oh, hang on, I've got a red, a yellow, and a green, so, oh, shall I get, I need an orange and a black and a blue, and I've got a good score there. That's all it is at the end of the day. You're not thinking about, oh, look, there's Suburbia. I'd really like to have Suburbia in my collection. No, there's a green game. I'll have that. I'll scratch out my next question, which was, how much of the appeal is just in seeing games you recognise? <laughs> <laughs> it's nice None. to see them. No, no. There's there's that moment going, oh, look. It's Memoir 44. Oh, that's nice. Then it's no. Two minutes into the game, you're like, no, that's a yellow game. I want okay. that. <laughs> is there any appeal for non-gamers? It's light enough for non-gamers, I think, but... Thematically, it would almost seem to exclude itself from non-gamers. Where does it sit? Who wants to play this? I don't think anyone wants to play it, Ronan. I honestly don't think... <laughs> oh, dear. I think it's a nice thing to have in your collection. The cards are cool. There's a little synopsis about each of the games on the cards. There's a couple of games that popped up that I went, Oh, no, I haven't seen that one mentioned before. I'll have a look at that. That's where it ends. I don't think there's enough for new gamers. They'll be hooked. They'll be like, oh, that was past five minutes. And it's definitely not enough for seasoned gamers. So I think it's just the thing to have in your collection as a seasoned gamer. Are you happy you backed it? Yeah. didn't cost a lot of money. I know Game Salute get a, a lot of bad press, and rightly so. But this one came through in the time frame they said it would come through. It was inexpensive. And I, I like it. As I said, it's it's like a set of top trumps for me. Lovely. That was... Board Game Geek, the card game. So moving on to my choice for this little segment is a fake artist goes to New York. 
This has no listed designer, but it's from Ink Games, a Japanese publisher, and they are super duper hipster Japanese hot at the moment with the reprint of their Dungeon of Mandum as Welcome to the Dungeon. That's been making a splash stateside over here. Kobayakawa Deep Sea Adventure, which here's my quick mini review on that. It's rubbish. Don't believe the hype. And Hatari, the bluffing game, which I just find incredibly confusing. But some people tell me it's a good game. It might be. I can't get my head around it. Anyway, they make small, generally interesting games that at least take different takes on mechanisms. This one is for 5 to 10 players and it takes 20 minutes and you might be able to tell from that player count it is a party style game so how does it work and it really is very very simple one player is the question master they are going to pick a clue so they're going to announce something they might say animal then they give every other player a board in the actual printed copy of the game with the name of the animal on for all of them apart from one and that one person is the fake artist. They don't get the name of whatever it is they're going to draw. It doesn't have to be an animal. It could be anything. They just get a cross on there to let them know they're the fake artist. Then what happens is, going clockwise around the table, players draw on the same piece of paper. And on a player's turn, they just draw as much or as little as they want to. Usually it's as little as they want to. Adding something to the drawing. And it goes around the table twice. So the fake artist is having to add to the drawing without knowing what the drawing is off. Now that might make you think, oh, we'll be able to work out the fake artist is. But, at the end of the round, when you have a look at the picture, okay, and everyone has a different colour felt tip, which makes it easier to see who's drawn what, everyone has to guess who the fake artist is. And if they guess correctly, then the fake artist has a chance to guess what the word on the card was. If everyone guesses that I'm the fake artist, I don't know what they were drawing, but I can say, well, it looks exactly like a tiger, so it is a tiger. I am, in fact, going to score points, and so is the question master. If, however, they guess the fake artist right, and the fake artist does not guess what the name is on the card, everyone else scores points. Now, the point scoring, like a lot of party games, is not that important. That is the whole game. It's come out in a little pink box. I've been seeing it around recently and starting to get a little bit of momentum behind it. Sean, a fake artist, goes to New York. Ronan, where do you find these games? Usually from all my hipster <laughs> bullshit friends. So Lloyd. <laughs> oh no, in fact, it's not just Lloyd. Thomas, Puria, full on. I'm surrounded by them. Many beards, many floppy hairs. <laughs> Yeah, it's a strange one. Well, I've certainly not played it, because given that I've never heard of it until you mentioned it to me recently. <laughs> it sounds like it could be a bit of fun. It's not really my thing. I don't see how it would be more fun than something more mainstream or very mainstream, like Pictionary. I've always enjoyed Pictionary. I don't see how this would replace it, Ronan. Tension. Tension. I don't like tension, Ronan. Tension. That's how it replaces it. Let me get out there. This game is genius. I don't know how it was never made before. This is brilliant. Every single role, apart from actually the question master, that's the easiest role in it. You just think of something, write it down and hand them out. Then you watch the rest of the table without trying to give away any clues. Whether you are the fake artist or everyone else, if you're everyone else, you're trying not to be too obvious, but you're trying to not look like the fake artist. 
And if you're the fake artist, you're trying desperately to work out what everyone else knows and is drawing without making it look like you're trying desperately to work out what everyone else knows and is drawing. And it's that whole, you can't give anything away, but your brain on either side is whirring away furiously. Trying to decide what to draw when you know what the thing is, but you don't want to be too obvious, is incredibly difficult, but in a good way and funny. And then trying to work out what to add. And sometimes you get it horribly right. And sometimes you get it horribly wrong. And then even as a question master, you're watching. And then someone who you know knows what it is will do the weirdest, most random picture. And you just think, thank you so much. Because you've just confused the rest of the group. Because it's the question master and the fake artist basically are on a team together. Even though they can't communicate. And everyone else is on the other team. Obviously the team switches each round. It's just brilliant. I'm going to take your word for that. I'm going to stick to Pictionary. I have to give credit to full-on Paul, where credit's due. What we got from the rules are, what's to stop the question master from giving a really obvious clue so that everyone draws it perfectly, but then the fake artist guesses what it is, and then therefore the question master and fake artist are going to score points. So he changed it slightly, he put in his own house rule there. The person to the right of the question master gives the clue, announces the category of what it is you're going to draw. And then the question master has to come up with a specific thing and hand out the cards. That works much better. This is a perfect short game. I love a short game that is not just a longer game made more simple or a longer game condensed or strip out all the interesting things. I want a short game that takes a simple mechanism and puts a little twist on it. This takes a drawing game and adds bluffing and social deduction to it. It's almost like a mix between Pictionary and The Resistance, if you like, only with less shouting and more drawing in pretty colours. No, I'll certainly give it a go. It does sound like it's fun, if I'm honest, and I'd certainly like to give it a go in certain company. Fake Artist goes to New York. Go out there, get it, play it. Awesome. So next up, joining us in the game pit to discuss her favourite and not-so-favourite short games is Sean's wife, Natalie. Welcome to the game pit, Natalie. Hello, boys. Thanks for having me on the show. Welcome, dear, even though you're two rooms down from me. Yeah, but I'm feeling the warm glow of love, so I'm feeling quite welcomed. It's brilliant. Natalie, what is the first short game which you really enjoy playing that you'd like to discuss today? So my first short game that I really enjoy in playing is Jaipur, designed by Sebastian Pouchon out of Asmodee. They've published such games I'm sure that you'll have heard of, Seven Wonders, Abyss, Zombicide. We know about that in this house. So it's basically a hand management set collection card game for two players. The idea of the game is that you are a merchant in India trading various goods to attain two seals of excellence. So the game area is five face-up cards dealt out, the rest of the deck, discard and money tokens are laid out in the play area. On your turn, you can either take cards from the market or sell cards from your hand. If you take cards, you may take several goods, at which point you'll have to exchange with cards from your hand. You may take one good for free and not have to exchange anything, or you may take all of the herd of camels, which can be useful when you're exchanging for other goods. If you are selling, you sell as many cards of one type of good as you want and take the equivalent number of tokens. There are bonuses for selling a lot of goods at one time. There are bonuses for having a large herd of camels, and that's basically the game. I really enjoy it because for one it's a good two-player game which is important in this house. I only really ever get to play two-player games mostly. It has actual decisions which I find in filler games to be quite rare and I also really enjoy the set collection aspect of it all. So Natalie, I know a secret. Somebody 
hates filler games in this particular version of the podcast. Given that somebody hates filler games, what sets Jaipur Sean, aside from the Sean, crowd? Who are you talking about? Yeah, I'm lost. I don't know. I think there might be someone lurking in the background. Right now. <laughs> oh, fair enough. Keep it secret. No one will know. <laughs> Given your distaste for said filler games, what makes Jaipur stick its head out from above the crowd? As I say, it's, it's a decent two-player game. I find it, as a filler game, does have decisions to be made, which I really enjoy, and you don't have a tremendous amount of downtime. I find that in filler games, any kind of downtime can feel like it's about five hours long. And with Jaipur, it's fairly quick-moving. There's not a lot that you can do on your turn, but there are still decisions to be made, and I just really like collecting the sets. It makes my little OCD heart happy. Lovely, and given that you are a fan of longer games, are there any longer games that you think scratch the same itch as Jaipur? One that I feel kind of scratches the set collection itch is probably Ancient World, but, you know, that has a bit of Euro thrown in, which is always makes me happy as well. And maybe Elysium. Elysium has set collection as well, so I think they're sort of meatier versions, but they add a little bit more to it. Obviously... If you are just having a set collection game, there's only so much you're going to be able to do with it, which is why I think it suits a filler game without having anything else added to it. Both myself and Ronan are quite big fans of Jaipur, so I think you're you're onto a winner there. So I'm sure there won't be any arguments about your, your following choices. So what, <laughs> what's your second choice, Natalie? My second choice for the filler game that I enjoy is To Court the King. This was designed by Thomas Lehman out of Rio Grande Games, a tiny small company. They've done a little known game called Carcassonne amongst many, many others. It's a card drafting dice manipulation game. The theme is that you are influencing various members of the court to gain access to the king. And you do this by rolling dice, gaining dice and thereby manipulating them. In your first turn, you have three dice. You roll them and you use the result to pay for one of the 19 cards available by fulfilling the condition on the card. E.g. for a card you may need to have three dice of the same value or the total value of the dice needs to be above 10 or something. The cards have different powers on them that either give you extra dice or you are able to manipulate the dice that you currently already have and eventually you will gain the top card which is the queen and trigger the last round. The last round is basically the person who manages to get most of their dice matching wins. So you could seven twos, eight fours, something like that. I really enjoy this, again, because it works well with two players. I like the manipulation mechanic because, you know, dice rolling games tend to be very, very luck driven, obviously, by the nature of rolling the dice. But with the manipulation mechanic, you actually have a little puzzle in there to work out. And again, with this filler, there are decisions to be made in this game, especially if you have, you know, sort of five or six dice and a number of ways that you can go and a number of cards that you can pick you can affect the course of your own game rather than just not having a decision really to be made. It's another good choice to Court the King. It's a game I enjoy as well. Now, it's been announced by Bezier Games that they're doing a reprint and a redevelopment of this game. It's coming out as Favour of the Pharaoh. So obviously it's got an Egyptian theme mm-hmm. on there. It's got many more roles and there's going to be 50 of which you only use 21 in each game. They're adding in custom dice. They're adding special dice, bonus tokens... 100 tiles now, they're making a much bigger game, literally physically making it a bigger game. It's appealed to you as a filler and as a shorter game. Mm -hmm. Do you think, I know this is going to be speculation, but 
given what they've announced so far. Is there enough to this that you're excited about the rethemed favour of the Pharaoh? You think there's enough of a skeleton there to build upon and it's going to be an exciting product and one you've got your eye on? Well, I've had a quick look at it and it does look quite exciting. I'd be a little bit concerned that it would just be dice manipulation mechanics. So obviously they're going to have to add something else to it to make it really work as a longer game. But I think there's enough there and who doesn't love a good Egyptian theme? So, you know, I'd be interested in picking it up when it comes out and I'm sure it'll make its way into this house at some point in any case. It's on Kickstarter. There's no chance it's going to get <laughs> No, and also it involves dice. So, hey, we've got no chance, right? No, you should probably go and get that yourself. <laughs> Sean! Actually, I don't like the artwork, so I can't see the point of getting the same game again if I don't like the artwork, even if there is a little bit more to it. So boo sucks to you. Okay, then. <laughs> One of the criticisms about To Court the King is that it's, it is still essentially a dice game. So you've got all these clever mechanisms, you've got this Yahtzee style to it. As you said, you manipulate the dice and you can do clever chains of actions together but at the end of it you're still rolling those dice and if you don't roll the numbers then you're just not going to win the game so a lot of people think that it's unfair what do you think about that i would disagree quite strongly with that the whole point of the cards is that yeah okay you're going to roll your dice and that's a base off which you take your entire turn but if you've planned your game carefully and you've got the cards and you can chain together you can just change every single face of your dice. I've seen you do it in games that we've played and completely knocked me into a cocked hat. You've rolled eight dice. I'm thinking there's no way you're going to get anywhere near to winning. And you just go bump, bump, bump because you've used the cards to great effect. And I actually think this dice manipulation mechanic really does decrease the amount of luck that is in the game. What did I knock you into? A cocked hat. There you go. I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> it must be a northern thing. Oh, shut up. <laughs> it's a brave man. Okay, so... Someone's getting in trouble for all of this. See, Sean's offended you now. Uh, it's time for you to offend me and be wrong. So, away you go. What? Wrong person. I'm not wrong. I'm never wrong. Short a game you don't enjoy that. I take no pleasure in this. I take a great amount of pleasure in this. And that's not what you said. It's the one I don't get the love for. And it is Love Letter, Q Howls of Rage from Ronan. Nope, he's sitting there in silence. Harumph! Harumph. Um, So it's designed by Seji Kanai, who has done other Love Letters in the series and a bunch of other card game fillers. And Love Letter is also published by Alderac Games, and they've got an awful lot in their stable. It's a deduction elimination card game for two to four players, where one card is dealt to every player except for the start player receives two. The theme of the game, for want of a better word, is to get your love letter to the princess, for which you will get a token of her affection, a little red cube. On your turn, you draw one card and play one card with the effects on the card taking action immediately. The winner is the one that manages to keep a card until the end of the game or have the highest value of card in your hand when the deck runs out. So the reasons that I don't like this game is it's far too light for me. I don't particularly enjoy the elimination mechanic, even given the quick game time. It really is no fun to just sit out and you can be sat out not even having had a go if the cards fall wrongly. I just don't think there are any decisions to be made in this game. Because in the most part, if you've got a card in your hand and you pick up a higher value card, that high value comes with its own set of text, which are not necessarily advantageous to you to play right then, or you simply cannot play right then and you have to play the lower value card. I just, I really don't see the love for this. I'm, I'm sorry, Ronan. Am I getting kicked out of the game pit now? I'm going to step in first before he has his <laughs> rant. And he's on a roll. If anyone heard our last Harbour episode, oh he's on God. a roll. So, what I'm going to say now, it's not a question, it's more of a plea. 
I started off from exactly the same standpoint as you with Love Letter. I just couldn't see the point in it. I couldn't see that there was any skill to it. But slowly, Roland beat me over the head with it. And eventually, I started seeing small little choices to be made and small ways that you can manipulate the game. I'm just saying this is just a plea to just keep giving it a go. Maybe it will click one day. I think it's Stockholm Syndrome. I'm sorry, babe. It's Stockholm Syndrome. <laughs> You know, maybe that's true. Maybe I haven't played it enough. And, you know, I'll play it every time it comes out because it is a quick filler game and I know that everybody else seems to enjoy it. And, hey, it's like 15 minutes of my life, whatever. You know, I'm not going to buy it. I'm never going to suggest to play it. I never really enjoy myself when we're playing it. It's, you know, it's just very meh. about if they do X-Files love letter? Ooh. <laughs> I might you just big. <laughs> you did go big or go home, right? I don't know. You might just get it to have the cards, but I still wouldn't necessarily play it. I just, I, I just get get the cards out and stare at the pretty for a little while. That's all. <laughs> the smoking man was pretty. Obviously, I'm going to defend Love Letter. It's one of my very favourite shorter games. I've played, I've logged plays over ninety of the various versions, and as for unlogged ones, who knows? Because sometimes I forget to log my plays. Taking your player elimination into it is and this is why I find it really interesting is every single turn reveals something now even if you're eliminated it reveals something about how that player is playing so the choices they're making and sometimes there isn't a choice and sometimes there is and then you have to start reading them and I find that sitting down and playing with the same group repeatedly the game only improves from there and it's so rare for a short small light game to have that sort of replayability whereby the game develops with every round and what was an obvious choice earlier or an obvious read of a player suddenly becomes less obvious. I did learn the game in optimal conditions by playing it repeatedly. I now play it loads with my daughters and we all read into each other what we're doing. We set up bluffs and counter bluffs, try and fake each other out and it's just for such a small game of 16 cards we have got so much out of it. If you don't like a game, you don't like a game. And a lot of it is random, and a lot of it is just playing the obvious card you have to play. But sometimes it's reading, if they played that card, what might they have in their hand? And when you're playing it with people who have played it a lot, you'd be amazed how often they get the guess right with the one card. Be it the guard or Batman or whoever else. Because they've read and they've watched how you play. Even when they're out, they've watched how you play and which choices you make. And they'll be able to say, right, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I know what you've got in your hand just from a couple of cards you've played. And that, to me, the fact that you can do that consistently suggests to me there's depth to the game despite the lightness of the experience. Can I make a couple of counterpoints? You certainly may, although we don't really like intelligent argument in the game pit. Okay, one, I don't know how much a game is to be recommended when you need to play it so much that you have to understand the players that you're playing with. So I don't play a lot of games other than with Sean. So anytime I play a three-player game, you're normally there. I would never have that opportunity to do that. I would literally never have it. I'm more of a casual gamer than you guys are. That kind of game isn't going to appeal to me. I just don't think it's enough game. You can't just shoot, because I've, I've actually seen some of the reviews saying that it's a good game, you know, for people who are just starting out at gaming. You should definitely play this one. That's the wrong way to go about it. I take your point that actually people who play this game a lot probably get more out of it and therefore I don't necessarily think it is one for casual gamers. I've taught it to a few casual gamers. It's one of the good ways to hook them 
because what we're trying to get with hobby games I think as opposed to a lot of mass market games is there is something more to this you don't just sit there and play randomly and certain people it does hook and they go oh hold on a second or they might say how did you guess that and you can explain the process by going well you did this and you did that and you played the two so therefore I presumed you had the six in your hand I didn't know for sure and because it is so light and simple they can see the cogs that go underneath the mechanisms more easily than sitting down and playing the likes of I don't know Catan or Ticket to Ride where you start trying to explain to them why you were doing certain things it's a little bit more obscure and then they can replay it and try and do the same thing themselves that's all I'll say and again it hasn't worked for everyone and not everyone likes some people plenty of people I know hate it I think if you don't enjoy the first play or the second play you're not going to enjoy those those future plays it's just it has clicked for me mm. well there you go this hasn't been too bad we haven't come to blows so I meant to say you're wrong sorry that's what I meant no. to say and, and here's what I meant to say if you want deduction in a game you should perhaps play poker oh I'm, I'm awful at poker <laughs> Really, truly awful. If you ever want to make money, play me at poker. And yet so good at love letter, so who knows? Um, yeah, I don't, it's, it, maybe it appeals to my simple mind. <laughs> anyway, I'm making Sean, no would you like to wrap us up? Well, <laughs> I would like to thank you very much, Natalie, for agreeing to step into the pit with myself and Ronan once more. No, thank you very much for having me. I, I need to leave because the smell is quite overpowering now, though. Yeah, we get like that sometimes. Sometimes. It's the pheromones. <laughs> you keep telling yourself that. <laughs> it's when we get close. <laughs> no, thank you very much for having me. It's been a delight as always. So, the next game Sean and I are going to discuss is part of a running theme through today's episode. It is Flowerfall, another game by Carl Chuddick and published by Asmadi Games. This one is for two to seven players and takes advertised ten minutes to play. I'm going to stretch it out to twenty, I would say, but somewhere around there. As for theme, well, we are all some kind of gardening wizards. And we're making a garden. And we're going to do that by dropping cards. So how does that work? Well, on whatever surface it could be, it doesn't have to be a table, there are going to be four starting scoring cards which are going to show some flowers on there. And the flowers will all be on a green background which will take up a certain amount of that base card. Each player gets a small deck of cards. They are two-sided. On one side will be more of those scoring flowers within green segments. On the other side... Each player will have an individual type of flower, so there will be different colours, different designs, and they will be within green backgrounds on the cards in different shapes and different quantities. On a player's turn, they choose what side of the card they're going to have face down, and they're going to hold the card out at shoulder height and then drop it onto the playing surface. The idea of the game is to create contiguous areas of the green. And in those areas of the green, there's going to be a certain amount of scoring flowers visible. And that's how many points that area is worth. And whoever has got the most of their own player colours at the end of the game, showing in that contiguous area, is going to score a point per scoring flower in the area. So you're creating one or more, usually more and many, areas of green with scoring flowers in. Players are trying to drop their own cards in to take control of them and score points. That's the whole game. It's an interesting little dexterity mechanism. Sean. So we're talking about Carl Chuddick. 
the man who's designed Glory to Rome, Motenai, Innovation, and now he's designed a game where you just throw stuff on the table. It's a big jump, and I'm not adverse to designers branching out. I'd love for Uwe Rosenberg to do a game that doesn't involve farming, but... Oi, Patchwork's a great game. <laughs> Uwe Rosenberg, actually, I'm going to take the task on that. Uwe Rosenberg is one of the most diverse... I know he is, I know he is, but... My... Don't, don't get me! There's enough in soapbox in this episode as it is. I know. It was just, he does a lot of farming games. But this is a big, big jump, and it's nice to see somebody, but it's a massive step away from what he usually does. It is a step away, and to be honest, it's a step away from most other games I can think of. I can't think of too many card-dropping mechanism games out there. It's one of his earlier designs. I think he's kind of got into this niche of exploring card combos and chaining actions. But there you go! Isn't it nice that someone explored a slightly different space? It is, it is. Now, for the game itself, I got into board games... Because I wanted to sit down at a table, play a board game while sitting on a chair. I, I don't see the point of these dexterity skill games like you've got Maximum Throwdown and Dungeon Fighter. I see people having fun, but I mean, I used to play football, I used to play rugby, I've done MMA, so I've done the physical things, and now I'm doing the board gaming thing, so I just don't see the point in them, they don't interest me, but yeah, each to their own. Are you telling me basically you're just a lazy sod? I'm a lazy sod. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, I I think these sort of games are cool, because sometimes you can get in a bit of a rut and not even realise it, when you're sitting there playing game after game, and long games, and sitting down, and the blood's not flowing. I know we mentioned Crossball, during the Lobstercon episode, we're just getting out and getting some fresh air. Alright, this isn't going that far, but just standing up and moving around and doing something vaguely physical. I can't believe we're comparing this to real sports now. We've never leaped, but I don't know, it's interesting to get up. It, it's novel, it's fun, it's a great idea. I don't think it's perfect. I think there's a couple of problems with it. I think players are not forced to drop scoring cards down so the game can get a bit moribund on occasion, especially if you're playing with people who really want to win. I think the scoring could be a bit friendlier for the weight of the game. The fact is it's winner takes all, and you could be caught vying for a big area with someone and they'll end up scoring 20 points and you'll end up scoring nothing and that can easily win them the game. It's not a perfect game, I just think it's an interesting game that fills a niche. I've played it quite a few times, novelty's slightly rubbed off but I'll always stand up and have a little drop of a card. And do you not have to do it like from from shoulder height? <laughs> yeah, is this, you feeling discriminated again? I am feeling discriminated, you, your little legs. Right, you need to go and play against Mag the Mighty. That's the only way it'll be a fair. I wouldn't object to a game of this. I've just learnt of a term called Swamp Ass, uh, which is when people sit down. <laughs> from, I can't believe uh, you didn't know what it was. I didn't I didn't know what it was. Yeah, maybe it's uh, something to do that will cure your Swamp Ass while you're playing games. I don't know. That's, that's... It's the, the best I can come up with. <laughs> but Mr. Chuddock is proud to have his game associated with such a <laughs> phenomenon. Oh, take us away from Swamp Ash, <laughs> So, okay, I'm going to go to last year's Spiel des Jahres winner. And that is Camel Up, or some people have decided it's called Camel Cup. Whatever you want to call it. 
It is from Pegasus Spiel, Z-Man Games, Eggert Spiel, and so many more. Designed by Stefan Bogan, and plays two to eight players in about 30-minute range. It's a very simple game where you are betting on camels racing around the board. The actions are you can take a leg bet tile, so you're going to bet on what camel finishes ahead in each of the legs, so when every person's had a go, and you're going to score points based on when you take the tiles, either 5, 3 or 2 points. You can place a desert tile, which are little player bonus tiles that are going to score players little bonuses as the camels cross and change the game slightly, even move the camels forward one space or backwards one space. So it can be quite strategic when to place them. You can take a pyramid tile. Now there's this huge pyramid sitting in the middle of the board and the pyramid is essentially a dice tower of some description you're going to pick the pyramid up turn it upside down give it a shake press the lever at the side and a dice is going to come out the dice are in the colors of the camels and have numbers on them and if the red dice comes out with the number two on it then the red camel is going to move forward two spaces and like likewise the yellow camel the blue camel what have you and lastly you can bet on the overall winner or loser by placing a face down card on the winner or loser pile. So what the general idea of this is, the earlier you place these cards, the more rewards you're going to get. So people placing them in the fourth round are likely to have people already have placed their cards down for whatever Camel's going to win or lose. And that is pretty much it for Camel Up. It's just a race, it's a betting game, and what do you think of it, Ronan? Do you remember when you used to go to the arcade when you were a kid, and there'd be those horse racing games? And you used to have to fire things and make your horse go quicker. Oh, or sometimes you didn't even have to fire anything, you just like wind a handle, which actually meant nothing, and <laughs> one of the random eight horses would win, and you'd cheer. Yeah. 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 That's it, that's it. yeah, well done! And that was I- Camel Up! <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it just has no appeal to me. There's nothing about it that makes me want to play it. It just looks like a whole heap of random with that sort of, oh, you might win, you might lose, who knows. If you bet early, you're just likely to get screwed over. It's all on the roll of a dice. That mechanism whereby camels can ride each other's backs. And people say, oh, you can like massage it so that people get a free ride. And you're like, oh, God, that just sounds so boring. I'm I'm sorry, I don't want to rag on a game I've never played. Who knows? But for me, it has zero appeal. So I guess my question to you is, it has been a big success. It has sold well. It did win the Spiel des Jahres. Having played it, Sean, what is the broad appeal? What is it that's clicked with people out there? I think it won the Spiel des Jahres because of its accessibility it's just so accessible there's hardly any rules i literally gave you all the rules there i didn't go into too much details but i gave you all the rules there's not much more to it than that does it encourage children to gamble i don't know maybe but i think it's a nice production ronan i think that pyramid is different I was actually quite disappointed. I thought there was some sort of catapult in it. The dice popped up and landed on the board, but no, you have to turn it upside down. So that was disappointing. Yeah, there's loads of luck. It's a racing game, betting on racing. So, of course, there's going to be luck involved, but why not just go and bet on racing? 
the bling doesn't make up for the lack of options in the game. All our own, I will play it. It is over fairly quickly, but yeah, it just doesn't sit well with me at all that this one, the Spiel des Jahres. So your answer to Camel Up is to form a gambling addiction. <laughs> I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying I'll never play it. I'm just saying I've never wanted to, and I've had opportunities to, and I've just had some kind of reaction of, oh no. You know what? Everyone that I know or have heard of that has bought this game has very quickly decided that mm, I don't think I want to keep it. I think it's one of those. It's it's there, it looks pretty, and it's got all this hype, and people want to give it a go, and it's maybe good for one or two games, but then you start thinking, well, what's the point? I might as well play something with meaningful choices, and it doesn't even educate younger players, I don't think. It doesn't give them anything to work off. They're not going to learn as they progress through this game. There's no arc to it, so I just don't see that it's anything that I would want in my collection. Well, that's Camel Up giving us a thorough thrashing by Sean. <laughs> so the next one of our contributors to join us in the game pit for this episode is Chris. Hey, Chris. Hey, hey, how you doing? So, Chris, you are an esteemed guest, very much. being a well-known designer of the very successful short game Empire Engine. So, obviously, you are used to playing short games a lot. What sort of a role do they play in your games collection? What do you particularly look for in a short game, other than that you designed it? <laughs> well, thanks for calling it wildly successful. I'm not sure that's strictly true, but, but I'll take the compliment. If you can't tell confidence sarcasm, that's your business. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I do play quite a lot of short games, actually. In my main groups that I play, and I do tend to steer away from fillers, it's not something that we play very much. But games that weigh in at about the sort of 30-minute mark are very popular with me, especially actually in a two-player situation. So me and the girlfriend of an evening. Oh, it'd be nice to play something, you know, after dinner or something, or between TV shows. That kind of game is just sort of perfect for us. So, yeah, they do get quite a lot of play. Lovely, lovely stuff. Okay, so, uh, Chris, the, the format for us is you're going to choose two that you like and you're going to have a big argument with Ronan at the end. So, if you want to start off with your first one that you like. Okay, well, the first one for me is going to be the 2004 release by Rainer Knizia, which is called Ingenious. It's about 30 minutes long. It's an abstract toll lane game, plays one to four players and is actually quite interesting as a solo game if you're into that sort of thing. It plays out on a hex board and each player has one of those kind of Scrabble tile holders. And on it, you'll have a bunch of pieces, which are kind of like dominoes. So imagine a domino, but instead of being two squares stuck together, it's two hexagons stuck together. And instead of numbers on them, they've got colours. So as you go through the game, you're basically placing these onto the board. And whenever you get a row of the same colour, then you're going to score that colour. And there's six colours in the game. It's quite a simple concept. You know, the, the more you get in a row, the more points you get. But what makes it clever, as always with Reiner Knizia, there's always a little twist that just makes it genius. And with this, the fact is that at the end of the game, your score isn't going to be a total of your high numbers. It's going to be the colour that you scored least in that is going to be your score. So what this means is the game's got a kind of delicious tipping point at some point where you suddenly realise that one of your colours is really falling behind and you have to get that number up, otherwise you're going to lose. And it's all about whether or not you realise that before your opponents do and they manage to block you in. 
It's also got one other clever little mechanism where when you get to a certain number on one colour, you get an extra turn. So if you can time it right and get two goes at a point where you can block someone's weakest colour in, one of those fantastic moments in the game, and it's fantastically tense and, say, all plays out in 30 minutes. Great game. I agree with you. I really like Ingenious. I think it's a fantastic game. My children play it. I play it with gamers. It's kind of flexible in that way. It's a good game to have in a collection. It is pure abstract. Are you a fan of abstracts? Is it something that you generally look to play? And are there any other abstracts you particularly recommend as good games? I'm absolutely fine with abstracts, as long as they play in an interesting way. I don't really care about theme. The Spiel podcast says, when they're talking about, they have their section about Gooba, talking about like great components. And I think it's really true that a good game can become a great game with great components. You know, they can take a game to that next level. If a game's rubbish... You can shove a theme on it or whatever, and it's still rubbish. For me, that's basically where theme comes in. It, it can make a game special. Something like Ingenious is special without it. It just absolutely doesn't matter. I do like some other abstracts. I'd say that Rosenkonig, which is a really clever little two-player game. I'm a big fan of that. But Ingenious is my favourite abstract for sure. You sort of talked about the blocking-in aspect of this game. What takes it away from being like a family-friendly game, like a Blockus or something like that? What makes it appeal to adults? Actually, Blockers is an interesting one because I think Blockers is, in many ways, it's got quite a lot of similarities. What I love about Blockers is you have that thing where you can attack and try and get round the back of your opponents into their rear areas of their board. Or you can try and build yourself into a position where you can not let them in, but you can really efficiently fill in your own areas. That's got a similar kind of give and take, push and shove aspect to it. Whereas Ingenious has got clever tipping point. Another thing with Ingenious is you can play it with people at different levels. I mean, as Ronan says, you can play it with the kids. And you don't have to play it in an overly competitive manner. You could just ignore Reiner Knizia's clever scoring system and just say, well, let's see who gets the most points. And if you did it like that, I mean, I'm sure you could go down to any age, five or six, I would think. For an adult, where you suddenly go from just scoring as many points as possible to spotting, oh, hang on a minute, that guy there, if I can block him off on blue, he's not going to have to score any more points on that colour. For me, that makes it an adult game. I think there's a nice balance, Chris, because you have to score your points in a colour. You're generally waiting for someone else to set up a grouping of that colour so you can spawn off them and lay a tile down and steal the longer chains. But then you don't want to leave that for other people as well. So it's attempting to make a bigger area without leaving it open is quite interesting. Absolutely. And I think the other thing about it is if there's a big colour and you can easily score big on it, what becomes important with that one is scoring on that until you're just short of ingenious knowing you can go and get an ingenious when you need one and then just forgetting about that color because what's the point and what tends to be the important ones and maybe you look at what everyone's got the third worst score on and you'll often find that one color everyone's been ignoring and if you can get a couple higher than everybody else then start blocking it in you'll find the ones that you're worst on maybe you're worst too then you can push them above it there's a lot of think and double think in it. So, would you like to tell us the second game you've chosen as a shorter game that you really enjoy? I would, Uncle Ronan. It's Maori by That's Gunter Burkhart. That's a little Burkhart. bit creepy. <laughs> <laughs> it's Maori by Gunter Burkhart. This one is unfortunately out of print at the moment. Maori is a toll lane game, plays two to five. Again, it plays in about half an hour. It's a really elegant toll lane game, which has got similarities to Carcassonne in its look. I mean, the tiles are about the same size, the box is the same size. It's even the same publisher, I think. Yeah, Rio Grande. It's a slightly shorter game than Carcassonne, and I think it's slightly simpler and slightly easier to teach, but I don't think it loses any of the game that Carcassonne's got. The big difference is, rather than building one massive expansive area, as you do in Carc, 
you've got a 16 tile grid in the middle and everyone's got their own player board which has got 16 spaces on it there's a grid of 16 spaces in the middle and the board can move as many spaces as you have boats on your own board you start with two boats and you can move so one or two spaces along and as the game goes on you might get more tiles from the middle that have got more boats on them so then you can move further around the outside wherever you land you take the tile that you land next to but you also have a number of shells that you can start with a few and then you pick up more during the game and the shells either let you move further spaces around the edge or let you take tiles from going inwards into the grid it makes for a fascinating game because it's quite nice it's quite simple you're building little islands your islands have got huts on them or they've got trees on them and the more you get on an island then it's going to score you more points so it's quite simple and it can be played very basically with a younger audience or a more simple audience what there's also in the box there's three versions of the game the simple one i say pretty much anyone could play but then there are also other boats in there each player can take a boat and put that onto their own player board which means suddenly you're only allowed to place tiles next to where your boat currently is and this suddenly makes it a lot more tactical. So you can look to your neighbour and sort of see, okay, well, he really needs an island in a particular orientation. So I want to leave him somewhere before his go where he can't get that particular piece. Again, much like Ingenious, you can play it on different levels. And I find that at the most difficult level, Maori is really, really hard. It's a really difficult game. It covers all the bases again and again in about 30 minutes. So Chris... I played this game quite some time ago and it's difficult for me to remember but I'm pretty sure I just played on the basic game and I just found that on that basic setting it was almost too prescriptive what you should do and what you shouldn't do it was fairly easy to decide where your tiles should go on your tableau it was obvious that you needed to get boats to get around to get the tiles you wanted it didn't really hold my interest I'm glad to hear you say that there's more to this game Absolutely sure. I mean, as anyone that listens to the Game Pit knows, you, know, you are a master of board games and how anyone could think that the basic level would be at your level amazes me. I thought you were you talking drunk? about a simple audience <laughs> earlier on was for me. <laughs> I think the simplest version of the game is very easy. I mean, it's still competitive, especially if you're playing against other people that are good at the game. You're battling for the best tiles. So there's still a game there. But yeah, when it comes around to you, you always know you can take something pretty much until very near the end. And it isn't really a gamer's game at that level. But when you ratchet it up to the two higher levels of complexity, and there is a flip side of the board as well, which makes it even more difficult. There's a lot more there than initially meets the eye in the basic game. Perhaps I should revisit that four I gave it on Board Game Geek. Ouch. Oh my. Oh my. Yeah, absolutely you should. It's definitely better than a four. Ow. So I think one of the interesting bits of the rules that we didn't quite go over is the majority scoring for the shells and the boats. That definitely gives you another edge on what you're doing, a different priority. You don't want to let someone get too many shells or boats because their flexibility will then be so much greater than yours. Absolutely. And what's interesting as well about that is that the shells and the boats, even though they both have, as you say, a majority scoring, so the way it works is whoever's got the most boats and the most shells in two separate ways is going to get points for however many they've got. It's not going to be a huge amount of points, but what's interesting about it is once you've got a boat... A boat is on the tile and it will stay with you for the rest of the game. So they're always going to be useful. They're always there. But with the shells, you get them off of the tiles in the same way, but you spend them. When it gets to nearer the end of the game, you might be thinking, you know, I could use a shell here to get a better tile. But if I do that, I'm not going to have the majority on shells. It's quite nice the way that even though they score in a very similar way, you actually think about them differently. 
the other thing I'll say, Chris, is with the advanced version, I think you get most out of it with just a couple of players where you're able to see where each other's boats are and make judgments. When you get to more players than that, you need to look just at the next person along. And if you're trying to look at too many people's boats and see where they are, it can make it more difficult to get the full backwards and forwards of planning where the other person's boats are and what not to leave them. That is true. I think the only thing is you do start to get a feeling how far around the board you're going to go before it comes to your go next. Like in four players, for example, later in the game, you can get to a point where you know you're going to go all the way around the board. And I've had games where there's another toll we haven't talked about, which is volcanoes. Depending on where they are, you can't use shells to cut in on that position to go past the volcano to get a better tile. For example, if two volcanoes come out in the same section of the board, in a four-player game, every time it's your go, you might come round and be stuck at the volcanoes again. I think even in the higher player count you're not worrying exactly about what people need because that's sort of someone else's responsibility but you are thinking maybe a little bit bigger than you would in the two-player game i think mary is a good choice i'm much more of a fan of it than sean is so after two good choices i suppose you have got the privilege of making a poor choice for your shorter game you don't understand the love for i feel i've lost you here you've lost me i've walked off in disgust i've dropped the mic i'm out I guess anyone listening now is, is going to realise that you knew in advance what my picks were. <laughs> oh, almost like we did prep. Yeah, it's almost like you've thought about this first. And I realise that this isn't going to be the most universally popular answer, seeing as this is ranked as Family Game Rank 1 on Board Game Geek. But my choice for not really very good at all short game is Seven Wonders. Ooh, yes. And, and thank you and good night. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're going to let you make your argument before we tear them apart. Just briefly to let you know, there's a fantastic thing on Board Game Geek where you go to your geek profile and you can rank games. And there's a section in there, you look at it and it tells you which game that you rank is furthest from the average ranking. So I went in there and looked down them and there were some real stinkers in there like Imperial Settlers and Battlestar Galactica. But after those, the one that was actually a short game that for me met this criteria was in fact Seven Wonders. So even though I knew that you were a fan, I thought I'd brave it. And the reasons I don't think it's cuts the mustard. Firstly, one of the things that people always go on about Seven Wonders is, oh, well, it plays Seven and that's really useful. No, no, it isn't really useful because it's no good with Seven. And it's no good with Six and it's no good with Two. Essentially, it's a three to five player game and there's an awful lot of good three to five player games out there. If you want to play a game with seven, play Six Nymphs. Play anything that plays with a lot of people because that's what a game that plays seven should be about. It should be about interaction. Seven Wonders falls between two stools. It's a kind of game that covers lots of bases. It's kind of a bit simple. It's kind of interesting in one section of the game, but most of the time it's kind of on rails. I find it repetitive. I think people think it's cleverer than it is because you kind of got this feeling that you're making a lot of decisions, but you're not really. Another thing is it can have massive kingmaker problems. If you're playing with people that aren't really very good at it and they're sitting in the wrong place, then you're just sitting there watching someone else get handed all the stuff you know they shouldn't be getting. Drafting for me is quite problematic in games. I think it's a mechanism that is brilliant and it's ripe to have some amazing games come out that use drafting. And I don't think we're really there yet. If you want something really short, really light, Sushi Go fits that bill. It's silly, it's daft, it's short, it's easy, you can play it with anybody. If you want a game that's still short but more gamery, which which does the system well, I think Fairy Tales an interesting game. 
And if you want to play a game which is a Euro, which has got good drafting mechanisms, play Notre Dame because that's a really good game. It's also short. I mean, I'm not sure 30 minutes. It's a proper decent fell game. With those three in your collection, you don't need seven wonders. Do you, Ronan? Well, I'm going to jump in first, Chris, because I think Ronan's rant may be epic on this one. <laughs> Especially since you mentioned games like Six Nymphs and Sushi Go. I could just hear Two, two of Ronan's favourites. That's why I, oh, I, yeah, why I yeah, threw them in. Two of his absolute favourites. He's probably playing them right now. Probably, I would uh, think probably, so, yeah. yeah. You people are sick. <laughs> Right, first off, I think you're wrong, but I do see some of the issues you've raised. I do think it's rubbish with two. I do think it has issues with seven. You keep talking about people say this and and playing next to a person. Are people one of your biggest problems with this game? Well, Ronan's certainly one of my biggest problems with this game. He doesn't count as a person, though. I think it's the same for everybody. When you hear people defending something that you personally don't like and giving it ridiculously high marks. And then when you hear the excuses they give, and you think, but that's irrelevant. And you're even saying it's irrelevant in the next sentence. It can't help but start to boil your blood a little bit. You know? Yeah, I rate this one at about a seven. I haven't got the love for it that Ronan has, but yeah, I do like this game. So, Ronan. Hang on, before we get to Ronan, I don't rate very low on games. And I rate seven ones as a five. I don't have a lot of hatred for games, and I don't have that much hatred for Seven Wonders, but if someone sort of said, oh, we've got this here, and we all really want to play it, will you join in? I'll be, yeah, okay, I'll play. I don't give it a one or something ridiculous like that. Am I allowed off the leash? Go get them, boy. Bring it. (laughs) Bring it. (laughs) Well, you're wrong, but I've said that already. I try to tackle some of the issues you raise with it. I think the Seven Wonders gets misused. You're talking about the player counts at which it does and does not work. It's obviously not a two-player game. We've got Seven Wonders Duel coming out later this year, which looks like it's going to be a completely different game. That does look interesting. My eye is on that. From three to five, it's actually very different on the the player counts. It's very tight as a three-player game, and it just opens up a little bit the more you have. It doesn't work well with seven players, with seven newer players, and seven people who don't really understand the game. And I don't mean that to be mean, with any game, as you play it, you get a deeper level of understanding. And in Seven Wonders, like many card games, you'll get to learn the deck. If you can't look around and see generally what people are doing, where the resources are, if you can't know roughly how many of each resource is in each of the eras, and then be able to look around and judge and go, oh, I can see all the brick is on that side of the table. I don't have access to it. Therefore, I'm not going to start planning for things that need brick. That's when you can play well with more than five players around the table. The idea that this game isn't interactive, that you're only interacting with people on your left and your right, is completely wrong. Because there is a fixed set of cards. Those cards are going to come into play somehow, be they buried or be they put in. And every time someone plays a card, you're getting more information as to what's going to be coming your way, and therefore more information on what will be good choices to you. But with seven, it's overwhelming. And what I don't like to see is at games nights or whatever, people going, oh, have you played this game? No. Oh, great, seven of us are going to sit down and play this. That's an awful way to learn most games. Well, no, it's, it's a really good way to learn games that are actually for seven people, as this one kind of sold itself on, and as people go on and on and on about the fact it takes seven people. It's not much of a defence to say... You shouldn't play this game with seven when it's called Seven Wonders and advertises itself as a game that's for seven people. And also, the other thing I'd say is your decisions are on rails. 
it gets to the point where you just know what you're going to keep when you get the cards handed to you. There's really very little choice in quite a large section of the game. I want a game where I've always got choices. Your defence isn't strong so far, sir. I think you're over-exaggerating the amount of the game that's played on rails there. It is one of those games whereby when you start off, it's wide open, and the choices you make then narrow down and define what's going to happen to you in the end game. But you're certainly not stuck on rails. Even in the third era, there are still decisions to be made. Yes, the first two eras pretty much set up in which direction you're going. But it is a half-hour game. And therefore, if I'm spending 10 minutes of a half-hour game, seeing what is the resolution of what I've done for the first 20 minutes, and I'm the one who built the rails, it's not the game hasn't dictated to me, I'm getting a hand of cards and I'm deciding what to do with it. So... I can't exactly agree with you with the on-the-rails part of the argument. In a way, I'm illegitimising my own answer, but I'm not even sure it's a 30-minute game. I mean, it's sold as one, and I think if you've got a bunch of players that really know the game well, the right amount of people, which is probably four or five, maybe three, and then you can probably bash it out in 30 minutes. But it'll go longer in a lot of situations, even with a couple of new people. And even if you're talking about 30% of the game being on rails, in a game like this, it just feels like too much. For example, do you think this is a better game than Notre Dame? Overall, yeah, I do. The card drafting choices in Notre Dame feel tougher, but I think I am more open to getting a crud hand. Because sometimes you just pull those three cards and you go, oh, they're all rubbish. And then that sets what I've got to do for that round on rails. I actually feel more on rails and not just more limited in my choices than I do when I play Seven Wonders. Uh, that's interesting. The way that it constantly builds those decisions from a smaller hand and you know what's coming because there's only that very limited amount of cards but you're seeing them in three sets. For me, that makes it a much more fascinating game. And again, and it is personal choice. And as I've already said, if you look at Seven Wonders rankings, people give it a one. I'm certainly not being as harsh on it as as many people would be. And I do do know where you're coming from. I'm not saying it's the worst game in the world, but for me, I think it's the most overrated. I take the point because there was certainly a period there, maybe three or four years ago, where it was the best thing since sliced bread. And everyone wanted to play it and it was out all the time. And to be honest with you, honestly, I started avoiding it in certain situations because everyone was playing it too much. And also I think the group in which you play a game has a big impact on how much you enjoy it. With Seven Wonders, I have a group of guys from work who love playing Seven Wonders. And we'll sit down and we can abuse each other. I've also played the team variant, which you talked about earlier, which I adore, as listeners know. Which I think boosts up the rating of it. They play games like Dominion or Lords of Vegas, which are again in my top five, because I have a group of friends and we know the game inside out. And when we're doing things, we know the impact of what the other people are doing without having to analyse it too much. And every game gets affected by that, but this one, Seven Wonders, is one that's been affected very positively by that for me. And that's fine. And everyone's got everyone's got poor games that they like because of the people they play them with. <laughs> and that's fine. But I mean, I know that you guys are with me on the whole uh, Imperial Settlers debate personally i just think it's a dreadful game when you see a game like that suddenly get up into the very highest echelons of board game geek it starts to rub you the wrong way because you're thinking i don't mind that other people like it but how can people keep giving it nines and tens and for me i think the say with seven wonders the, the biggest thing is the fact i can understand that people like it people like everything that's fine but it's in the top 20 it's the number one ranked family game i mean that's preposterous it's a million miles away from being the best family game and but you know Preposterous. What is? Preposterous. I was doing all right with staying calm, and now you've mentioned Seven Wonders and Imperial Settlers in the same breath, and now it's just. 
He's going to say Harbour's a great game in a minute. I just... You're a son of a... <laughs> Trust me, I'm not, I'm not comparing Seven Wonders and Imperial Settlers. <laughs> there we go. Chris, thank you so much for joining us in the Game Pit. Do you have any parting words for your public? Uh, well, firstly, it's been an absolute pleasure, as always. Go back to Ingenious. It's only about 25 quid, and you can play it for free on a website called ingeniousgame.com. So if you want to try it out, if you're listening to this and think, oh, it sounds quite good, go and have a look at that. Maori's out of print, but there's a really good online game site called yukata.de, and you can play it on there if you want to check it out, and then maybe explore and find a copy. And I just say, if you want to hear more, like, totally ridiculous nonsense from my mouth, just come over to goplaylisten.com. And that's where I spout off about games. Cheers. And we can heartily recommend goplaylisten.com as well. Now I want to talk about a game called Dead Man's Draw. It comes from Mayday Games. I can't actually find a designer, but it plays two to four players in a time frame of about 10 to 15 minutes. So it's definitely one of our quickest games, but not the quickest. It's a push your luck game. Well, there's going to be a draw deck which is formed of 10 suits of cards. Now these cards range from 2 to 8, apart from one type which is the mermaids and they go up to 9. We're going to start off by taking all the 2 cards and putting them to form a discard pile. Then it's a case of, as I said, pushing your luck. You're going to draw cards into the middle of the table on your turn. And each of these cards is going to do something to you, do something to the game, do something to the other player. For instance, one of the cards will take another player's card from them. One card will stipulate that you must draw two more cards. So they will all do something. And there's a two cards if they combine, they give you a nice little bonus. It's the treasure and the key card, and they give you a nice little bit of treasure from the discard pile. You keep drawing until you give up and you take what you've got, or you draw another one of the same suit of cards and that means your game is over unless you've got any cards that are protected in that row they all go into the discard pile you have a special power that you are given at the beginning of the game that manipulates one of these types of cards usually that's it scoring at the end of the game will be done by adding up the highest card of each suit in your collection in front of you on the table. The highest score at the end wins. It's a really, really simple game. I'm interested in Rona's opinion on this. It's super light. I know you said that a couple of times there, but I think that's the main point to emphasise. Really, it is push your luck boiled down to its barest and meanest of bones. You don't even really have to follow what's going on around the table. It's sort of the game that you get out, we said it before, at a restaurant, at dinner on a train journey where people are chatting and hanging out and it's just something else that's going on, a sort of mild distraction. I think it does have something to it. It's got that kind of take that aspect to it. Things do happen with each card. It's not just you're waiting for the same suit to come out and it's not just the push your luck. The cards are all doing things and it is quite funny and it's so short that it doesn't matter if you get your highest card taken off you or you have to discard I think it's it's just a nice, fun game. And Ronan, you're absolutely right. Yeah, at a restaurant or on the train. Perfect. The player powers you can get, Sean, with the different characters that give you a bonus for this or change-ups on the powers of the suits. They're a bit strange. Some of them rarely come into effect. Others can be effective situationally. Are they really necessary? I didn't really follow the Kickstarter campaign for this game. 
but it feels like a Kickstarter style add-on. So I'm wondering if that's what they were. So you could end up all getting the same power. It just, yeah, they feel a bit, you're right. That's the right word, strange. They don't really enhance the game for me. They just make it a bit more convoluted when it really shouldn't be. Seeing as you've promoted gambling in our last <laughs> segment, I'm going to promote alcoholism in this segment. No, I, in all honesty, you know, while I was playing this, I was thinking, this is a perfect drinking game. Now, that's not to say you have to go drinking pints and pints of beer with this game, God forbid. But I'm thinking, as you're pushing your luck, if you get bust, the number of cards you bust, then there should be some penalty. Be it in eating chocolate buttons, drinking fingers of beer, shots of rum, whatever it is you might decide. But as a sort of a game with a penalty for going bust, because it's almost all too easy to just go, yeah, draw, 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 I bust, oh, never mind. Yeah, you could. You definitely could. I think there would be a lot of merit in, in doing something like that. Even without that aspect too, I think there's just enough in the push your luck that you don't want to go too far. But even if I get a good card, someone may well nick it from me before it comes around again. Anyway. True. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not yeah. terribly invested. You know, the push your luck is there, but I don't feel like I'm really dicing with danger. I think if there's an element of danger to it, if I have got seven cards out and then I bust on the eighth, it adds more to it. Yeah, no, I, I think so. I think so. To be honest, it's so light. I think we're kind of done here. I will say, does it really reward good play? Not really. But it's quick and it's light. And this is what it does right. We have played super light games before. We've reviewed them in this episode and elsewhere. What I hate is if I'm having to do stuff which is just there because of extraneous rules and it's basically just overheads, be that rolling dice or moving tokens or having to worry about some kind of bookkeeping which really shouldn't be necessary. This gives the right level of fun to complexity. How much do I pull in? How much do I get out? It's quite funny. When people are playing pals and each other, when you pull off a lucky combo, you can have a bit of a chuckle and a laugh and a chat around the table, and it's not asking you to do too much to do that. It's literally just flip a card. So in that super light category, this is definitely one of the ones that I'll be happy to play. Yeah, everything you said. I also think it is rife uh, just making up your own little house rules. You, you've already made up one with the possible drinking game. I think you, they always... Or, or, or chocolate buttons. Or chocolate buttons. Yeah, yeah, just uh, give, make everyone chocoholics. There's a suggestion in the rule book to play it as a team game and up to 10 players. And you can do a lot with this game. And yeah. Whoa. Steady on. <laughs> I think you can add a lot into this game to make Whoa, it work. Whoa, steady on. You can make this game work on diff- <laughs> on off for more players. It can be bent to your will, is what I'm trying to get. And that is Dead Man's Draw. Okay, and we're going to move on to another card game. This one is recent 2015 release. It's Arboretum. Designed by Dan Kassar, who designed Cavemen The Quest for Fire. It's released by a big publishing house, that's Z-Man Games. And some of their huge hits, Terra Mystica, Leave, Agricola, Robinson Crusoe, Russian Railroads. They seem to specialise recently in taking big Euro releases, especially around Essen, and bringing them across and publish them in the English language. But this is not one of those. It's for two to four players. It's got a listed playing time of around 30 minutes, which I think is probably around correct. 
what are you going to do? Well, you're all playing with a deck of cards, and you're trying to create areas of trees of different species. Now, there are a number of different species in the game, and the number that you use is going to be dependent upon number of players, and for example, it's eight species for two players, and it goes up from there through three and four players. Each of those species of trees has got some, I will say now, beautifully illustrated cards, and they're numbered one, two, eight. Each player starts with a hand of seven cards. On your turn, you draw two cards. Now, you can draw those cards from the face-down deck, which is going to have all the species mixed together, or each player starts with one card in a discard pile, and you can draw the top card of any discard pile, and you can do that for the second one again. So any mix that you wish to do of drawing cards from the deck or discard piles, reminiscent of Lost Cities. Then, from your hand, you're going to play one card into your Arboretum in front of you and discard one card to your own discard pile only. So you can draw from other people's discard piles, but a discard to your own. When you're playing a card to your Arboretum, it must be orthogonally adjacent to a card that's in there already. And what you're looking to do is create paths. Now, you're looking to create low to high paths. That's how you're going to score points at the end of the game. The most important thing is that the paths start and finish on the same species. Several paths can use the same cards. I can have a path from a 2 to 7 of one species and a 1 to 8 of another species that you even go through that 2 and 7. As long as they start and end on the same species, it's a valid path. You do get bonuses for having homogeneous paths. So if I get them all the same species of 4 cards or more, so if I get a 1, 3, 5, 7, 8, wherever it might be, that gives me extra points. A starting path on a 1 is a good idea. Now we're talking about 1s and different numbers of cards there, why would you not lay all your cards out? Because there's a very interesting twist with the scoring. For each species, only the player or players with the highest value cards in hand for that species is going to score the path off that species at the end of the game. So for example, if I hold higher value oak cards than any of the other three players, only I am going to score any oak cards I have in play. But the balance there is, of course, if I've retained oak cards in my hand, I haven't put them down in my arboretum to make them as part of my path. And the interesting thing here is, if the one of a species is anyone's hand, the eight of the species is in effect cancelled. So you're balancing there whether ones have been played, whether to retain eights, to put eights as part of paths, and it adds a twist into, I guess, what was sounding like, the pretty simple-sounding card-laying Game, Sean, Arboretum. Right, right, and I think the depth in this one, it all comes from the scoring, which is quite unusual. The explanation of the game, very, very simple. You're going to draw a card, you're going to place down a card, you're going to add to Tableau or your Arboretum in front of you. It's all very easy to remember. It's actually the scoring is where it actually all starts to come to life, and... I don't want to take you back to, <laughs> to one of your no. lowest moments. No! No! <laughs> Why? I didn't understand that scoring at all, Ronan. And I stumbled yeah. upon a pretty decent strategy in the game, didn't I? Yeah, in our first two-player game, I tweeted the photo of the scorecard where I scored zero and Sean didn't. Because all the species I made paths off... He just kept hold of the higher value cards. Now, I didn't realise quite how much he was blocking me in the scoring. I thought he was going to have some sort of reason in his mind and go after some points for himself. But no, he didn't. He he just blocked me. Yeah, that was the bit I understood, so I went for it. <laughs> yeah, it worked. <laughs> it did work. Zero points. I learned. I learned. <laughs> Bless you. It is a 
very, very interesting game. And when it boils down to it, you're only really making two or three choices per turn. And just that one choice of picking up what card you want to pick up and what one you discard after that is often agonising. I'm going to do a short hit. It looks amazing. I really think it looks pretty. And the theme is different. The whole thing comes together to give you almost a unique experience. But the looks are a trap because it is difficult to make those decisions. It is thinky. It is. I wouldn't go so far as to call it AP because you're making quite simple decisions, but you're trying to judge the impact of imperfect information and you're trying to work out what cards everyone else may have in hand. Now, I will say that that aspect of it is more interesting with more players. With two players, it is zero sum. You know towards the end of the game that, oh, I haven't seen that card out. It's not in a discard pile. It's not in Arboretum. They've probably got it in their hand. They've probably got the one. I've got the eight, which makes my eight useless. With more players, although you can kind of tell that card's not out properly, who's holding it makes a difference. It is exactly that rule that really changes it up. That one cancelling the eight really makes a huge difference. That was the one thing that I was focusing on because there were some ones that hadn't come out and I was sitting there with the eights. Do I lay the eight, take a chance that you've got the one so I'm going to score more points for my path or do I hold on to the eight in the hope that you're going to play the one or you haven't got the one yet? Just that one little mechanism in the scoring, it makes you think a lot harder than you probably would have done. Yeah, it's a little twist which adds a lot to the game. It's a very clever twist. The only negative about that is, I will say, it does make the game slightly more difficult to introduce to casual gamers and non-gamers. And it is a game I think you could pull people in with because of the looks and because of the kind of simple way of building your tableau up. But having to explain that scoring, people's eyes kind of glaze over a little bit. And it usually does take one playthrough for them to see it in action and get it at the end. Now I see the importance of 1s and 8s and how to use them. Two... Just round up for me on this one. I think it's an absolutely beautiful game. The different types of trees are beautifully drawn. They look lovely in your tableau. It's a pretty face with a sharp mind. Much like yourself, Sean. Absolutely, absolutely. (laughs) It's lovely to look at, but when you get down to it, it really is a head-scratcher. But I I enjoyed it, Ronan. I'd like to give it a go again. Yeah, I really like it as well. I love the fact that it combines a spatial consideration with set collection with bluffing with some screwage all in a half hour card game i think it's probably better with three or four players even though it gets a little bit thinky i very much enjoyed it i've only played it four times so i've got way more to explore of it puri has mentioned this episode about having a little kit bag of smaller quicker games to carry around this may well find its way into mine for quite some while to come and that is arboretum So the final, but by no means least contributor to join us this time around in the game pit is our friend Paul, famous from his Virgin Queen victory. Hey Paul, how's it going? I'm good, I'm good, how are you? I'm wonderful, we're going to have less dodgy French accents this time. Uh, you know, it, it, I mean, sometimes it just comes out of me. But, uh, <laughs> if you're feeling particularly continental, just yeah. give us a warning. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Virgin Queen, you are famous in the pit for being the victor in the longest game we've probably ever played. Now we're doing shorter games. Have you been doing your homework? 
I've been playing nothing but short games in preparation. I don't like to disappoint you guys. You're both bigger than I am, so I thought I'd better stick to the rules. So, would you like to introduce the first game which you would recommend? My first choice, a short game I'd recommend, is a small German game called Geistersplitz, also available on the English title Ghost Splits. It's a 2010 game by Jacques Zymet, and it's published by Zoc. It's basically a pattern recognition game, a sort of speed-based game in a similar vein to things like Jungle Speed or Dobble. In the box, you get five wooden pieces. You get a white ghost, a green bottle, blue book, a red chair, and a grey mouse. Again, the game starts, you're turning over one card at a time, and the cards will either have something that matches perfectly, i.e. a picture of a white ghost or a grey mouse, etc., or nothing on them will be correct, but one thing won't be represented at all. So there might be a blue bottle, a green book, a red mouse, and a grey chair, and then the correct answer would be white ghost. Once you've identified the correct answer, it's a who can grab it quickest kind of a thing. So fast, fun, and a good excuse for kind of slight physical aggression. Which I think is everything you want for a short game. Okay, I'm going to have to come in here quite hard to start with because you're wrong. Because this game is evil and it hurts my nails, which are very important to me. (laughs) But most importantly, it hurts my head. I think there's probably some people who are just not going to be able to do it. You've got to be able to think relatively quickly. And that kind of visual pattern recognition thing, I think, is something that some people are naturally better at than others. Having said that, though, I think you get better at it as you play. So I think there is an element of like it's a learnable skill. Whether you want to take the time to learn it or not is another thing. And, you know, the rough and tumble side of things, it's just an excuse to touch people, you know. <laughs> now, have you spoken to a pro officer before, actually? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can only play Geist of Blitz under very strict supervision. <laughs> Does it do anything that Double doesn't? Now, I love Double. I'm pretty good at double. I have had practice with my kids. I'm awful at ghost splits, so I'm completely biased towards double on this. Or spot it if you want the less fun but more prevalent name. Anyway, does ghost splits do anything that double doesn't? They're very similar, and double I think has the advantage of having multiple play modes. The thing that ghost splits has got going for it that double doesn't is how hard it is. Like you said, it hurts your brain. Not only that, but you can make it harder. There's a variant in the first version of the game. If the book's on the card, then you're saying the answer rather than grabbing at the thing. If you ever grab the wrong thing or grab something when you're meant to be saying its name, you lose a point. So you can kind of ratchet up the difficulty. You can do that further with, the, there's a Geister Blitz 2, which has got different stuff in it. You can play with them both. So the first thing is to say, oh, which set is this card from? And then you've got to identify the correct thing. And there's even a third version, Geister Blitz 5 to Midnight. I've not played it, looking at it on BGG. There's more wooden pieces, more rules, and it looks just impossible. <laughs> just, just exactly what I need, the game yeah. made harder. There's another game. Have you heard of Gloobs? I haven't, No. I am going to put it out there that Gloobs is the next step up from Dobble if people think Ghost Blitz sounds a bit too hard. It, there's seven items in the middle of the table. There's three paint cans, blue, red, yellow, and there's three creatures or something. There's a triangular one, a square one, and a spherical one, and there's a boss gloob. And what happens is you turn the card over and you say most or least. If someone says most, you want to pick up the colour that there's most of on the card and the shape that there's most of, and they won't necessarily be the same thing. If you say least, it's the other way around. And I think that is a step up from Dobble, but not into the insanity where my brain doesn't work of Ghost Blitz. Yeah, that sounds interesting. I'll have to check it out. I mean, it sounds harder to me, but maybe it's sort of easier than you're making it sound. I think, <laughs> I think my big secret here, the, the winning strategy, I think, for Ghost Blitz is just pick up the white ghost. It's always the white ghost. Always. 
Yeah. Let me write that down. Okay, thank you. Obviously, I think Ghost Blitz is a game that's kind of designed for families and children, but works well with adults. What do you think, short or long, is the best kids game that works for adults? I, mean, I don't know that Ghost Blitz is a kids game, but the game I've got in my collection, which is definitely for kids, but really, really works well with adults, is Rhino Hero or Zuper Rhino. That is a very basic sort of card tower building game. Jenga I like but with cards and it's awesome it's incredible fun I think what makes it is that it's quite easy to build stuff with cards so you get towers of ludicrous heights we've been playing at the pub and had people standing on stools wobbling about a few drinks down and then they start playing Rhino Hero (laughs) that's the time of the night to get Rhino Hero it's fantastic and it's definitely Zuper Rhino Okay, Paul, would you like to let us know what your second choice is for a great shorter game? So my second choice is a game Spyfall. It's a 2014 release designed by Alexandra Yushan and published by Hobby World. But I think it's currently in the process of being republished by Cryptozoic. It's a bluffing, sort of social deducting game. And it shares a lot with a game that I think has already been discussed this episode, Fake Artist. Which, of the two, is actually probably my favourite, but I wasn't allowed to pick it because someone else had. Because it was mine. Host was so, in Spyfall, basically the box comes of lots of mini decks of cards, in which there is one spy card in each deck, and multiple other cards that all have the same location on them. So each deck will have one location. There'll be a deck of cathedral cards, a deck of beach cards, etc. In an eight-player game, seven people will get a card telling them they're at the beach, for instance, while one person gets a card that tells them they're a spy but it doesn't have any location on it. No one knows who anyone else is. Players then take turns to ask each other questions about the location. The non-spy players are trying to identify the spy by asking questions that the spy won't know the answer to because he doesn't know where you are. And the spy, meanwhile, is trying to work out from the questions and answers that other people are giving where they are so that he can blend in and at any time the spy can reveal themselves and if they guess the location correctly they win the round otherwise if time runs out set to a timer usually about 10 minutes i think we play for normally then there's a vote and if the majority of people correctly identify the spy he loses the cards also have roles on them stuff like you know if you're at the beach might be a lifeguard or a sunbather and i think that role playing those can really help the non-spy identify each other but I think that everyone needs to know that that's what you're doing before you start the game, because otherwise you lead to some confusion. The beauty of the game is that it's a balancing act. As a non-spy, you can't be too specific with either your questions or your answers, or the spy's going to work out where you are. But if everyone's too vague, then the spy can be equally vague and blend in easily without standing out. I think it's just a game that really appeals to me. It's something I find very funny about a group of people all being vague at each other. A standard opening question in our group is, what's that smell? And, <laughs> and the variety of vague responses you can give to that question is mind-boggling. That smell is hats. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to start. Spyfall is brilliant. I love it. I've only had a chance to play it on one occasion. No, two occasions, I think, but several games off it. And I had such good fun with it. And my daughter is absolutely begging me to get it when it comes out again. One thing that's missing from the first release, though, that which is really important and should have been in there, especially for new players, is a player aid with a list of those locations. Because Oh, yeah, absolutely. When you're new, if you get that spy and you don't know what the locations are, you can feel lost. And then when you kind of have the absurd thing of everyone having to remember to have a look at the one page that shows the locations in the rule books, it's not obvious because one person actually needs to look at that. Yeah, it is really easily fixed, and I hope they do for second edition. But as you say... Having one sheet in the middle with the available locations, it quickly becomes really obvious. The only person who needs to look at that is the spy. 
they need to be quite surreptitious about doing it. An added disadvantage for the spy that isn't required at games seems to be pretty well balanced without component issues coming into the mix. Mm-hmm. A couple of other issues around it as well. For me, I kind of felt like at the beginning, especially if you learn it as a group, you may need a limited number of locations because with all of them, it does. it's a little bit overwhelming, even to try and pretend who you are. If you've got limited locations, it makes it slightly easier for everyone. Yeah, I think that's maybe a good point. First time I played it, it was probably about 50-50 in sort of spy versus non-spy wins. But most of those spy wins probably came from the time running out and the spy not being identified rather than the spy accurately guessing where they were. So maybe starting it with a restricted pool of locations is not a bad idea. Okay, and I think the only other comment I have on it, and trust me everyone, overwhelmingly positive, is it a little bit group dependent? I think the best fun I've had with it is when people are getting into the roles, they're pretending. If people try and game it too much, I think it kind of limits the fun to the game. With all of these social deduction games, I think it's really dependent on the group. I think this one is short enough and fun enough. Things like the resistance can really turn quite sour if you're in a group of people who are not playing it in the way that you enjoy to play it. And this one, I think, protects you from that a bit. Like everything, you know, play with people you like. It's usually more fun. I think you'll find the resistance has already had a good kick in from uh, one of our other contributors. (laughs) So it's a a game that I really enjoyed initially and then... That's basically what Adam spent 10 minutes saying, so I wouldn't worry. So, talking about giving games a kick in, would you like to tell us about the shorter game that you don't understand the love for? This one, I had a couple of options for this, but the one I went with in the end was Space Cadets Dice Jewel by Jeff and Sidney Engelstein, published in 2013 by Stronghold Games. It's a multiplayer, I think up to eight players, real-time, dice-rolling, miniatures combat game, I suppose. The players are split into two teams, with players managing their ship's stations, sensors, weapons, helm, tractor beam and shields, and under the direction of a captain for each team, who's supposedly letting the players know which direction to move in, which shields to raise, and which torpedoes to fire, in order to destroy the opponent's ship, which is the aim of the game. All of the ship's stations are variations on Yahtzee, with the players frantically rolling dice until someone yells fire, at which point the game is paused and the attack's resolved. The problem for me is it's all a bit random. I've played it a couple of times and I've never really felt like I've had any effect on the game whatsoever. I've just rolled some dice as fast as I could until either my team or the opposition team won. If you take away the theme, six out of the eight players are just rolling dice until they match symbols on a card. The two captains might have an impact on the result of the game, but even then the success is it's just kind of luck rather than judgment nine times out of ten, I think. The problem with it is the kind of an element of tactical positioning, but doing that successfully is dependent on you keeping track of about sort of eight or nine pieces of information spread across both teams. And in the time it takes to say fire, one or two of those have probably changed, completely throwing off what you're about to do. I don't think it's necessarily a terrible design. It all works and nothing seems broken. It's definitely not my thing. So I haven't played Dice Jewel, although it's something I would like to give a go to. But I have played Space Cadets. Have you played Space Cadets? Can you compare the two? I haven't. I've seen reviews and watch Shut Up and Sit Down did a Watch It Played. I think comparing and contrasting between the two, with the longest, bigger Space Cadets, each of the tasks in and of themselves have some interest to them. The mini games that you're playing are kind of a bit interesting on their own. Whereas with Dice Jewel, as I said, you're just rolling dice. That's all you're doing. I think the interest for me in Space Cadets, I actually quite enjoyed playing that game, is in the teamwork and the talking to each other and the what I do matters because everyone else invested. If you play with a team that invests in it, that helps. 
it seems to me the problem with Dice Jewel that you were finding was everything is too frantic, so the teamwork goes out the window because you can't look at what everyone else is doing. You're just having to do your own thing. So it removes what is the fun in a team game. You know, this head-down sort of style, you're not sharing experience together. Yeah, frantic's definitely the right word. Dice going everywhere, especially if you play with Puria. Half the dice are under the table. Everybody's... It's his talent. That is his talent. <laughs> yeah. And he um... has got an awful kick in this episode as well. <laughs> Sorry, sorry for joining in. Everybody's shouting. There's no planning. There's no time for that calm, like, oh, this is a problem we're faced with. Let's work together. You never feel clever. You never think we've engineered ourselves a really advantageous position to, to win the game. I just need to feel like I did something to have an effect. Like, if I ever roll well in a game of X-Wing, it'll have been my play that got me into position to attack. You will never find that out, Paul. You will never find that yeah, out. Yeah, it's going to happen one day. I keep rolling those dice. And I think that's important. You just need to have done something to make yourself feel clever. I really love a team mechanism. I think I have mentioned that elsewhere in this episode as well. In terms of team games, are there any particular ones that you do enjoy and you think do it correctly, remove this frantic hurrying and you get to enjoy it? I really like team games as well. The one that springs to mind is 1812 by Academy Games. It's a kind of light war game about the uh, America-Canada war. Obviously, I'm a big history buff. You can tell from that description. <laughs> um, there were some people. Who there were, yeah. There's two places far away that, if I'm honest, I thought were the same country. Um, <laughs> now you sound American. <laughs> yeah, and that that did it really well. That had you having to discuss. It was obviously a completely different game, completely different pace of game. But the tactical discussion between the team, you can make plans and do your best to follow them through, and and it really seemed to make a difference to the game. Still, a lot of dice rolling. Still, a, a big element of luck. But you felt like you had some control and you felt at the end of it like you've done well or badly because of how you played rather than just by luck of the dice. What I love is that just trying to be a smart ass googled War of 1812 and come up with the Google results of the war that no one wanted to name. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even be a smart ass. Damn you, Google. 1812 is a ton of fun. Another guy I really like. I haven't played 1775, which is supposed to be even then an improvement. That's the War of Independence one. Yeah, I haven't played but, that either. Yeah, I mean, no, 1812. They're pretty expensive. I'm waiting for one of you guys to pick it up. <laughs> it's always a little bit of a Mexican standoff when it comes to releases, doesn't it? Yeah. Paul, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your thoughts on shorter games. Have you got any parting words for our listeners? No, nothing clever. Thanks for having me. Get out there and play some short games. You can log more plays on BGG. And that's what it's all about. <laughs> you and Bonnie Kate said that. Now you should Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> this will be my last episode. Thank you, fans. I must go now. So my final short game for this long episode on short games is... Meteor. This is from Mike Young. Now, Mike has designed a number of games, but they have all come out via Game Crafter, the website where you can get a game made and you can order games, and it's a great resource, primarily in North America, I believe. This has been picked up. It was looked at by a number of publishers, but it was picked up in the end by Mayday. Uh, Mayday have published such games as Coconuts, Bootleggers, Kick That Lumberjack. They've got a business model based around Kickstarter. This was a Kickstarter game and it raised £37,000, which is lovely for all involved. It was Kickstarter in 2014. It started to become available. It's for one to six players and it has a playing time of five minutes, which is strictly 
five minutes. It will be no more. It might be slightly less, but it won't be any more. So what's the theme of the game? This is about meteors, and they are hurtling towards Earth. And every minute they are going to get closer to the Earth, the players must work together and cooperate in real time to stop the meteors from hitting the Earth, and they're going to do this by sharing resources and launching rockets. You get five one-minute sand timers in the game, and every time that one of those sand timers runs out or you decide you're done with the round, the next round starts and the meteors get closer to Earth. There is a deck of cards. In there, there are four types of resources, five types of rockets. There are six unique technology cards. That deck gets shuffled up and each player gets dealt a number of those cards depending upon how many players are playing. And you also have a number of meteors laid out in the middle of the table, again, depending upon the number of players who are playing. Both meteors and the rockets I mentioned in that technology deck have got a strength of 1 to 5. And the strength of the meteors is that's how much damage you have to do to destroy it. And the strength of the rocket is how much damage it does. Each rocket will have a certain number of resources which you must spend as a team to be able to build it. Each technology will have the same thing. And the technologies will allow you to get bonuses during the game, handing cards, allow you to communicate better. We'll get onto that. Each player can only build one rocket or tech at a time. When you start a rocket or tech, you must add the first resource yourself. Then the other players can help out by adding resources from their hands. It will help you to complete the rocket. If you complete a rocket, it launches and you choose a meteor for it to hit. Now, the effects of the rockets hitting the meteors are dependent. Meteors come in different types. Some of them require a certain type of rocket to defeat, so it might require a chemical rocket, for example, where the chemical resource has been required to build that rocket, otherwise the meteor can't be destroyed. Some are pinata meteors, which means they hand out a resource to everyone they've destroyed. Some meteors will hide in the shadows, which means you must defeat every other meteor before you can go on to that. There are meteors which destroy other meteors because they explode. There are meteors that turn into smaller meteors when you blow them up. There are numerous effects to the meteors. One of the main effects in the game is, though, if you send a rocket up to kill one of these meteors to blow it up, and you can send multiple rockets at once between you if you coordinate that, if you do more damage than the health, if you like, of the meteor, you're going to create an overkill, which means you automatically move on to the next one-minute round, which... It's something you're going to need to time or you're going to have to be accurate or it's an extra something to think about. At the end of each round, each player draws one or two extra resource cards depending upon, again, the player count. That is Meteor. It is a real-time co-op in five minutes. You don't get many of them. Now, there are different ways of playing and I'll just take you quickly through how you start. So when you learn the game, you start with all the Meteors face up. So you see exactly what they're required to be blown up. You see their strength. The next challenge is to keep them all face down. And you have to send a rocket to a meteor. And once the rocket hits the meteor, then you flip it face up. And you see what's happened. Has it been destroyed? Has it had any effects? What's going on? That makes it more challenging. Well, to start with, you can speak to each other in the game. In the next level up, you cannot speak to each other. You can only gesture, point, use non-language vocalisation is how the game puts it. Now, for both these things, there are technologies which you can build, those six unique technology cards. One of them allows you to look at meteors. It's the satellite system. And one of them allows you to speak to each other, basically build a comm system. So that's where technologies start to come in and be more useful. 
Once you master that, there are boss meteors which you can bring in, which have various effects are very difficult to defeat. To balance that up, there are unique player powers. There are 13 player roles. You get dealt one each, and you're extra super duper at something. Once you completely conquer the boss meteors, then there are challenge cards, which add challenge to the game. And those are also balanced with top secret cards, which add double resource cards and more technology and different things to give the players yet more powers. So as you can see, there are lots of things in the box, lots of ways to play the game. Sean Meteor. Well, Martin, I'll start off by saying I'm wondering if they've added that little sort of learning curve in post the original production of this game. Because before we got this game, I did my research and every bit of research suggested that the no talking was that was the fundamental part so i'm wondering if they added that in i think that's probably a really wise decision because there is a learning curve to this game it only plays out in five minutes so your communication and what you do and how you lead others into doing what you need to do has got to be spot on for you to win this game yeah there's actually sort of three rules leaflets in the game one is the rule book which i guess i may as well mention now Mayday are kind of notorious for not having the best rule books. This is not the best rule book in the world, but it's not their worst rule book either. The rules are there. It's not that hard to work out. I think there's just a few layout issues. They're not possibly presented in the most user-friendly way. To counter that, there's a separate booklet that's got a card glossary, and they tell you if you turn a card over and you don't understand it, the current sand timer, you put it on its side, you look in the card glossary, and it'll tell you what the card does. And you know what? it does and it works well and all the cards are there by section as a type of card so that's a real good addition the third thing is it's a little leaflet in there that says read this first and it's in that that they introduce the idea of have the meteors face up and be allowed to talk to each other first and then progress through the challenges so it's not actually within the rule book so i think it's definitely something they've got from customer feedback be it through their backers by it be from the people who bought the game through Gamecrafter, I don't know. But yeah, it does seem like it's an addition, but it's in there, and I think it makes teaching the game so much better. Now, play this game with younger children, when I say younger, like 8, 9 upwards, I played without the, the sand timers to start with, and with the communication, the meteors face up, and just play it, and get through it, and we worked out how we we're going to win, and then slowly add the elements. And I think they were to rewrite the rule book. I would make that an integral part of it and then have the sort of real game with the communication issues, which, let's face it, that is where the longevity of the game is. That would then become later on in the rulebook as you expand through it. I like this one, Rodan. I like it. I like what's going on. The only slight down point for me is he mentioned playing it with a slightly younger crowd. It can get quite stressful at times. I actually think it's quite funny. I don't get too stressed, and that's all to do with the game length, because it's only five minutes. If it goes horrifically wrong, you've only wasted four minutes. It's not like those games where you put a lot in and then suddenly it all falls apart, and then you start getting worried about it. I think it's one of those games where you go, look, this hasn't gone that well. Let's have a little chat. What should we do different next time? Let's go again. And five minutes later, you've played another whole game of it. And then you have a chat and go, okay, what should we do this time? Great. Let's go again. And that is definitely it. It's the one more go. It's got that factor to it. Another thing that you touched on is the different things, the different meteors, the different cards, the different steps you can take to make it harder. I think it gives it a lot of longevity for such a short, simple game. I think it actually makes you want to explore it. And if someone said to me, I'm going to give you a five-minute game and said that you're going to want to explore this to find more, 
I just thought, no, you're mad, but this actually manages to do it. You actually want to play those harder challenges and see all the different meteors, and there's a lot in this box for a game for five minutes long. Yeah, again, two things there. One is, you get better at it. To give it any longevity, I think they needed that level of challenge and more in the box and they did it so i think it was necessary otherwise it would be a bit too light i know there's also questions about the price of it because it's a five minute game people seem very wary on spending money on it i think it's around for like 25 30 us dollars well as you just said you can get dozens and dozens and dozens of plays out of this and plays are different and flipping over the meteors changes up and unexpected things happen and funny things happen and it's a good experience in all honesty in my opinion anyway well worth the money for me an innovative game there's lots of fun in there i do find it a little bit stressy sometimes when somebody's not quite cottoning on to what i'm planning or trying to get them to do but how oh, so be it as running said it's only five minutes plays differently every time you play it and for five minutes yeah what a great game i was dreading playing it if i'm honest with you when i got the box for the sort of jokey artwork and a five minute real-time cooperation game i'd never heard of from a game crafter designer i was like oh man this isn't going to be good it's going to be one of those games we'll play and throw away i cannot stop playing it I bring it everywhere. I want to play it with my family. I bring it with gamers. I bring it when I think we might have 20 spare minutes. I can play it solo. Genuinely enjoyed it solo. Play it with a bigger group. I am so impressed with this game. I really didn't think I was going to be. It's shocked me. This, I think, is a great, genuine, quick filler game. And it's Meteor. Okay, now... The last game we're going to discuss is a game called Star Realms. It's by White Wizard Games, designed by Robert Doherty, who's from Ascension fame. He's also done Battleground Fantasy Warfare and a new game coming out that's causing quite a lot of buzz on Board Game Geek is Epic. He's been joined by Darwin Castle, who did one of Ronan's favourites, Battle for Hill 218. And it is a two-player game with about 20-minute time. So what do you do in Star Realms? Well, it's a deck-building game. All the cards basically have trade or combat on them. You're going to use your trade points on the cards to acquire new cards. You're going to get ships or bases. I'll talk about them in a little bit. And you're going to use your combat points to actually attack your opponent. Everybody's got a set limit of hit points. So what kind of ships are you buying? There's four factions in this game. There's the Trade Federation, the Blobs, the Star Empire and the Machine Cult. And they all work kind of differently and they all have like synergies within the pack. So if you've got a Trade Federation card, you're probably going to want more Trade Federation cards because they're going to give little bonuses as you go along. As I said, you're going to acquire ships. They're going to synergize with each other and attack or defend but the bases are slightly different. The bases come in just normal bases or outposts. The bases are going to sit in front of a player and provide attack or defend bonuses. And again, they're going to synergize with the ships of the same type. And the outposts are effectively defenses. They are going to defend your base. In order to attack you now, a player must destroy the outpost that is defending you. And there's not a lot more to it. It's a very, very light game. And uh, Ronan, what are you thinking? Star Realms is a slippery little eel of a game, Sean. And I cannot get a handle on it. 
the two words that kept coming up when I was looking at how I'm going to describe and talk about this game. Quick and simple. Everything I'm going to say is going to start with this has quick or this has simple. I find that an old quick and simple thing, it sort of flatters to deceive. It shows me that I can make combos. You can go down a certain colour route or make a two-coloured deck, you know, yellow-red decks, you get lots of money and attacks, or go blue defensive, whatever it might be that you want to do. But too often, I start trying to do that, and then I can't carry on doing it. Because from those five cards, they don't gel with what I've been trying to do, or when they do gel, I haven't got any money, and I find that I can't follow a plan that I'm trying to make for the game. I see what you're talking about, absolutely. From moment one, I didn't think it was ever trying to be anything deeper. I think that the synergies and the cards and the way they link up with each other are so basic and you either go down a one-colour or a two-colour route and you work off that and then, yeah, do more of those cards come up. And if the bases that synergize with the cards that you've chosen, the factions that you've chosen, they don't come out, then, yeah, it can be it can be a lot of luck drawn, but for 20 minutes... I didn't expect much more depth than that, to be honest. I've never had a game go any 20 minutes. They've always gone longer than that. And one of the main issues is, especially if you get someone with a few blue cards, or keep getting defensive outposts out, and all the healing that you can do. Actually, I've found that boring play wins. Almost every time I've played it, the optimal play has been to keep healing, keep extending, keep getting outposts out, and drag the game out. It hasn't often rewarded good aggressive play because I can't get the good aggressive combos together to break down those defences quickly. In my experience playing it, I think you've got two paths. You either do set yourself up for a slightly longer game when you defend yourself and you get more cards into your hand, which obviously makes the game longer because there'll be more things that work off each other. Or you go for the juggler really quickly and then that is completely dependent on getting the right cards into your hand. You have to do a lot of damage quickly and early in the game. And and then it becomes more luck-based, because you either do or don't get those combos. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I wouldn't disagree with that at all. I know it's mostly a two-player game. I've played it four-player a few times, and actually it worked fine. We just had it that you have to attack the person to your left, they get eliminated, you attack the next person on, so that you're not having to make decisions about who to attack, there's no sort of nastiness about that. It was perfectly good, but the games were over an hour long. Yeah, you don't want to be still playing Star Realms for over an hour, absolutely not. It's not got enough meat on its bones for that definitely and now i have to make a revelation which taints everything else that i've just said sean i'm absolutely awful at it i have never won it (laughs) i'm terrible i'm cannot play this game well i don't know if that means that there is actually something to it and some sort of strategy i certainly haven't found the strategy other than if i get really attacky tacky cards into my hand earlier I go for the jugular or otherwise I just try and defend myself if there is a strategy to it someone please write in and tell us because I haven't found it film me and do the opposite <laughs> there you go <laughs> Don't... I took a whooping from my daughter and my nephew on, the, on their first game and I'd played it several times they just destroyed me it's embarrassing <laughs> it's embarrassing I'm embarrassed why are for you, you dragging this out in public <laughs> I'm why? for you just another little quibble I've got with a game could they we're being a bit mean about it we're being uh, no I don't mind it I think it's 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 right in the middle it's a five or a six for me but one of the things that just annoys me is those authority cards which are basically your hit points can we not just have a pen and paper 
<laughs> They're so annoying. Oh, hang on, hang on, I've lost four points. Oh, I haven't got the right card. Let me exchange that, and I'll bring in change every turn. But you know what? You can use pen and paper if you want to. It's not something I'd have to go about the game for. You know, you can use them. It means there's a whole game in the box. If they hadn't put it in, you'd be like, what? You give me this game and I've got no way of tracking my hit points. That's rubbish. At least there is a way, and it means it's all in a deck of cards. A dial. And it fits in the tiny box. A, a dial like in Xenoshift that doesn't sit right and annoys you. <laughs> non squared off dial. <laughs> now I'm getting angry. <laughs> ah, look, they put them in there. I can't fault them for putting something in. You're just being a curmudgeon there. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't argue with that either. <laughs> I genuinely find it hard to offer a concrete opinion, even after playing it. Two player, four player, three player, been through it. Ugh. I keep playing it, but it keeps leaving me unfulfilled. I think I just want more. I want to be able to make those combos. I want to be able to make a successful deck. I can't. Partly due to the fact luck of the draw. Partly due to the fact I'm completely incompetent. I want it to be Race for the Galaxy Light and it's not. It's Race for the Galaxy Light, 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 Life, Diet, Light. Say Light a few more times. No. Okay, you've done. Light. <laughs> light. I'll go back to what I started with, Ronan. Quick, simple, basic... But has a mild enjoyment about it. I don't mind playing it at all. I own it. The wife actually quite likes it. She demands to play it back to back whenever I get the box out. I've got no problem with that. I'll always play this game. I'd far rather play Race for the Galaxy for a space type game or, or Dominion if I'm doing deck building. Yeah, it's okay. It's, it's a five or a six. And that is Star Realms. And there you have it. That is the end of our big episode about small games. We really hope you enjoyed the show, and I can assure you that no contributors were harmed during the making of this program. It was a close-run thing, though. It was a couple of close moments. For some of them. <laughs> Thank you, and well done for getting to the end of this, our longest episode ever. Thank you if you listened to any or all of this and the previous 49 episodes. We're looking onwards and upwards. We have many plans. Immediately coming in our next episode are some reviews. We're going to be looking at The Gates of Loyang, Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective, The Galaxy of Trian, and Fallen. We're going to be picking over the bones of those games. Sean, see us out for the 50th time. It's just bringing a tear to my eye, Ronan. It's special. It is special, just like you. As always, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go there for the very best in gaming podcasts. You can also find us at 2d6.org. Go there for gaming goodness of the highest calibre. We can be found, if you want to email us, at thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com. Also pop along to our Board Game Geek Guild, where you can set up some subjects that we will join in and talk to you about, or just chew the fat. We can also be found on Twitter, at Game Pit Podcast. We have a Facebook page, so come along there and join us. Music by E. Aaron. 